Good morning and welcome everyone. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government, and this is the beginning of our one-day conference on government reform, why change is necessary, and what needs to be done. There are people offering quite a lot of answers to that this morning in the political sphere, uh, but these are our answers, which are, in fact, it seems to us, though we're not going to touch on it, very relevant to the kind of discussion going on at the moment all over the, the news. And this conference, we spent um, quite a lot of time, in fact, you might say years, in fact, you could say the whole history of the Institute in planning, but it is pegged to uh, reports we brought out earlier this year under the leadership of Alex Thomas, who heads our civil service program. And one is a new statutory role for the civil service, and one is better policy making. And I'm conscious I'm holding up these printed reports for uh, particularly for an online audience. It might seem very retro, but we went to the trouble of printing these out, which we wouldn't normally these days, to say, look, we really mean it, and we want these things to last. Well, we've got, uh, we're going to divide the day into two, and the first half is looking at this role and the statutory role that we're recommending for the civil service and the lines of authority and responsibility. Then this afternoon is about policy making, where Tom Sass um, one of our terrific team is going to take us into that policy-making paper. Um, I've got a wonderful panel here to discuss it. Margaret Hodge, who has been Labour MP for Barking since 1994, I think, and was uh, chairman of the Public Accounts Committee for an exceptionally lively five years. <laughs> Ian Cheshire, um, many, many distinguished business roles, also the government's uh, former uh, lead non-exec. And Jonathan Jones, QC, who was former head of the government legal department, now legal consultant. Thank you very much, all of you, for joining us. Before we get stuck in, and before, indeed, Alex uh, takes us into the detail of his presentation, I'm going to hand over to our chairman, David Sainsbury, who wanted to say uh, some words about why this one really matters to us. David, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Thank you very much. Um, I think in uh, my life, I've, on a number of occasions, uh, made, had to make speeches in less than ideal conditions. Uh, but I think none as bad as uh, talking about the long-term reform of the civil service uh, while the government is actually sort of imploding just around the corner. I think actually the worst occasion was when, uh, a few years ago, uh, when I was chairman of Sainsbury's, um, I went to get an honorary degree at Cranfield University. And um, before it, the uh, Vice-Chancellor said, um, would you give a speech uh, before the honorary degree ceremony? I said, of course. And went up there, and um, I discovered the other person getting an honorary degree uh, was Neil Armstrong, uh, the <laughs> astronaut. And uh, I came to my turn for my speech, and... Uh, the Vice-Chancellor said, I, we're really excited to have two excellent speakers today, uh, Neil Armstrong, who will talk about what it is to walk on the moon, <laughs> and David Sainsbury, who will talk about the future of the supermarket industry. <laughs> and uh, when you've been through that experience, uh, talking about the long-term reform of the civil servants uh, is really quite easy. As chairman of the Institute, uh, in the normal course of events, uh, I leave it to the director uh, to chair and speak at conferences of the Institute. Uh, but on this occasion, I decided I wanted to speak in order 
to stress how important the two reports we're discussing today are for the reform of the civil service and to say why they will form the central part of the work of the Institute uh, for the next two years. During the eight years I was a junior minister in the then DTI, uh, I learned two lessons. The first is uh, that civil servants in the department were very similar in terms of motivation and hard work uh, to the managers I had worked with in industry. And I don't think I ever came across an example of civil servants trying to thwart uh, the wishes of ministers. Blaming the civil servants for the failures of government is therefore, I think, both rather infantile and unproductive. But I also came uh, to the view over the eight years that I was in government that the lives of both ministers and civil servants were often frustrating and dispiriting because the system we were being asked to operate uh, was dysfunctional. Uh, there appeared to be two reasons for this. Firstly, the alliance of accountability between ministers and civil servants were unclear and there appeared to be no one with the authority to manage the civil service. And secondly, there were in the DTI very few civil servants who had any expertise in the policy areas on which they were advising ministers. I early on decided if I was going to have an impact on the science and innovation policy, I would myself need to learn about how it worked in the UK and what was the experience of other countries. So when I set up the IFG in uh, June 2009 with the task of redesigning the machinery of government uh, to meet the challenges of the 21st century. I gave four examples of the sort of system system systemic problems that I thought the Institute should tackle. Uh, the first was the lack of clarity about what is the responsibility of ministers and what is the responsibility of civil servants. The constitutional position seemed to be that everything that happened in a department was the responsibility of the minister other than the accounting officer role of the permanent secretary. Though no one believes that ministers have the time or in most cases the knowledge and experience uh, to manage their departments. The result is that permanent secretaries are not held accountable for things they should be and ministers are blamed for things for which they cannot reasonably uh, be held accountable. It is just very important to understand that most ministers have no experience of running a large organization when they become the minister. I remember Stephen Byers, who was one of the ministers um, in the Department of Trade and Industry, uh, when I was there saying, David, it is just very difficult to know how to run this organization because all my experience so far has been running my constituency office, which has three people, one of which is my wife. And this is no way uh, to learn how to run a large organization. A systemic problem was the lack of anyone with the constitutional responsibility for running the civil service. I had naively thought when I became minister that the head of the civil service was like the CEO of a company and had the responsibility and authority for managing the civil service. But I gradually realized that constitutionally the head of the civil service has no authority uh, over permanent secretaries. He is therefore more like the senior partner of a law firm who is responsible for ethics, uh, who has which office, and the Christmas party. 
than the CEO of a company who is responsible for the efficient management of the organization for which he's head. And the reason that the activities of government often appear not to be joined up is that it's not the job of anyone to join it up. A third systemic problem that I thought the Institute should tackle was civil servants' lack of knowledge about the policy areas about which they advised ministers. When I became Minister of Science and Innovation, there was quite clearly a crisis in science policy, which had led to an organization called Save British Science being set up. But none of my civil servants could tell me what was going wrong or what I should do about it, and it was clear that I'd have to find out these things for myself. When after leaving government I set up the Institute, I therefore suggested it, that it should look at the issue of poor policymaking, though at the time I had no clear idea why it was so poor. Finally, while various tasks have been de delegated to a large range of different arm's length bodies, neither ministers or civil servants seem to be clear in each individual case who was responsible for what. And this was something that clearly needed to be fixed. Looking back 10 years after the Institute was set up, I think we've made some progress in reforming these issues, but not as much as I would have liked. For example, we've convinced the leadership, I think, of the civil service of the importance of functional leadership. Functional leadership being the basic uh, business idea that in multi-divisional organizations, it's essential to have at the center of the organization technical experts in areas such as accounting, IT, and human resources, who set down the technical standards uh, uh, that all divisions should follow and advise on overall policies uh, for the organization. And today, in all three areas, there are technical experts at the center of government, but fairly predictably, it's not totally clear what authority they have uh, to lay down the necessary standards or see that they are properly implemented. I should say, only a few years ago, um, there were questions about financial re uh, uh, reporting across government. And John Brown and I went to the Treasury and said, look, uh, there seems to be poor uh, financial accounting in departments. Uh, what are you going to do about it? And the Treasury said, uh, the way that accounting is done across the civil service is no responsibility of ours. Uh, they should do it as they wish. Uh, and if you know anything about um, accounting, uh, you know that actually that results in uh, an extremely inefficient and poor way of controlling costs. The Institute um, uh, has also clarified, I think, the reason for policymaking record of government is the constant movement of civil servants between jobs within departments, and that the reason for this constant movement is the incentives they're given. If you tell people that they can only get a salary increase if they move jobs, and that a key criteria for judging their performance and suitability for promotion is breadth of experience, not performance in their jobs, you should not be surprised if there's a lot of movement of people between jobs. The Institute has also done some useful work clarifying the relationship between ministers and different types of arms length bodies. But in the key areas of accountability of ministers and civil servants, 
and the quality of policy making, uh, we've not made as much progress uh, I would, as I would have liked to have seen. It may seem that these issues I'm talking about are boring and administrative and constitutional issues, uh, which ministers and MPs should not have to think about. So let me say why they're extremely important if we are to improve the way the country is governed. When finally the review of the government's performance during the pandemic is done, I think it will emerge clearly that the government was ill-prepared to deal with it. And quite rightly, people will want to know who should be blamed. Constitutionally, uh, the answer is very clear. The Secretary of State for Health at the time of the pandemic was declared should be held responsible. But the decisions about our preparation for a pandemic would have had to be taken years before, and it would be difficult to hold him or a previous Minister of Health responsible. At this point, I hope it will be realized that there are certain tasks in government which should not be left to current ministers, but should be the clear responsibility of the head of the civil service. In this category, I would put the readiness of the government to deal with emergencies, such as pandemics and cybersecurity attacks, the long-term capability of the civil service workforce, and issues of diversity, equality, and inclusion. And on these issues, he or she should report to Parliament and be held to account by Parliament. And each year there should be a report to Parliament. But such a reform could not, of course, take place given the current constitutional position, as the Cabinet Secretary does not have the powers to carry out such responsibilities. Turning now to the poor policy advice given by civil servants to ministers, the idea of the generalist civil servant who has good presentational skills and who is good at handling the minister is still alive and well in Whitehall. And it's not difficult to find endless examples of poor policymaking in key areas. In March 2017, for example, the Institute produced an excellent report called All Change, which looked at the policy changes and their impact in three key policy areas, further education, regional policy, and industrial policy. In all three areas, they found an almost continuous process of change and very little improvement. In the case of FE, for example, uh, where we've had an appalling record, which goes back uh, to 1870, since the early 1980s, they found there have been 28 major pieces of legislation related to vocational FE and skill uh, training. Six different ministerial departments had had overall responsibility for education. 48 secretaries of state had had relevant responsibilities, and no organization set up to deal with the training, uh, vocational training, had survived more than a decade. And in March uh, 2017, the quality of our technical education was in comparison with our other major countries as poor as it was in 1870, when the first commission reported that our technical education was not as good as Germany. 16 to 24 old years were presented with a variety of pathways and programs of different lengths and levels leading to qualifications valued differently by employers 
and provided by organizations of varying qualities. Someone joked at the time, if you were not confused by it, then you clearly had not understood it. I would also draw your attention to a recent IFG event, which is mentioned in our Better Policy Making Report. At this event, John Kingman, a former second permanent secretary of the Treasury, described how he was asked by Lord Gus O'Donnell to look at the organization of the Treasury and how he'd suggested that there were certain topics, uh, corporate tax, say, or pensions, or the energy market, which were treasury business, which were also ferociously complicated and technical, and perhaps not ideally suited to being left entirely to even brilliant 24-year-old generalists. He suggested creating new roles outside the conventional hierarchy for he people who were expert in these areas. But as he said, his proposal hit bemusement and proved so weird and countercultural it died a quiet death. Civil servants need to build up knowledge about key areas of policy, and particularly to know what other countries do which excel in particular policy areas. It can't be said enough that we in this country have few policy pro problems other than fox hunting and hereditary peers which are not shared by other countries. And one of the most obvious things to do when reviewing a policy area is to find out which countries in the world have the best record in that policy area and then to think what we can learn from them. Of course, the social and cultural backgrounds of countries differ, but in my experience, this is something which is usually exaggerated and rarely stops one from learning how best to do things. I think we also need to put a stop to the widely held view that policy is made by high-flying civil servants and then handed over for implementation to an inferior group of civil servants who only need to know about project management. I think it's good experience for policy experts to have on occasion the experience of implementing policies they have devised and in my experience, the implementation of new policy also requires civil servants to have domain knowledge. As a new policy is implemented, problems will inevitably arise which can only be solved by people who have domain knowledge. I hope I've shown you that the paper on the constitutional position of the civil service, which Alec Thomas will now talk about, is not a boring administrative or institutional issue and similarly the poor policy-making skills of the civil service, which Tom Sass will talk about this afternoon, is also an vitally important issue. I hope it is also clear why they will form a central part of the work of the Institute in the next few years. As I said at the start of the talk, I think they are key issues which, if we want to reform the civil service, are of absolutely fundamental importance most of the other issues being in the words, world, words of the late Harold Lever, no more than frolicking at the margin. Uh, thank you very much. David, thank you very much indeed. And now Alex is going to talk about the first of these papers. Alex 
Thank you, and thank you for bringing your own chair up. We don't, we don't, we don't require it of other guests, but uh, <laughs> only of our in-house. I, I hope I've hit my marks. That's the uh, yeah. uh, got uh, got this on the turn. Uh, thank, uh, thanks, Bronwyn, and um, uh, thank you uh, everybody for being uh, here today and, uh, and and online. It's um it's it's daunting, but uh, I've been looking forward to this sort of you know these uh, ideas getting out into the wild and having a uh, having a debate and a and a discussion uh, about them. So so uh, really appreciate that. As as Bronwyn and, and and David said, I'm going to talk a little bit about a report we published uh, a couple of months ago about. Uh, a new statutory role for the civil service. Um, and uh, one of the things when I was sort of pulling together these slides, which I hope you can see online, but I will talk through them, is you know you always try and come up with uh, uh, energizing, interesting, uh, engaging graphics or pictures. Uh, and this is not a subject necessarily that, that lends itself to that. Um, so I've got a picture there of um, uh, Critchell Down, which is... Yeah, a, a, a field um, uh, with Critchell House, which um, plays its own important role in uh, accountability in, in government. And that's about um, as exciting as the pictures get. But as David says, the subject is uh, energising and interesting enough for, um, uh, for, uh, for, for, for all of us. Uh, without getting too sort of conceptual, um, uh, I thought it was worth saying something briefly about accountability and responsibility, because the two concepts can get confused. Uh, for me, accountability is being answerable for your actions, and responsibility is having a duty to perform an action. And how that uh, plays out in UK government and the civil service is that currently, conceptually, or theoretically at least, ministers are accountable for uh, all of the actions and activities of their departments. Ministers are responsible for the decisions that they make, and civil servants are then accountable to ministers for the actions for which those civil servants are responsible. So uh, again, a little bit, uh, a little bit sort of convoluted there, but uh, th these are the sorts of um, these are the sorts of uh, uh, issues that we're that we're dealing with. That um, uh, I probably haven't done it justice, but that is a that is a clear sort of theoretical framework. But as David said, um, it does seem increasingly clear that as things have uh, developed through. Uh, Critchell Down and set off uh, by the Armstrong Memorandum that describes this position of accountability and responsibility, um, the complexity of government, the ambiguity and responsibility between um, ministers and civil servants, um, the uh, uh, limited role of parliament in holding uh, civil servants to um, account has meant that there are blurred responsibilities which have caused some uh, problems. We may come back to uh, to, to that. But building a little bit on what David said, um, uh, this sort of confused uh, setup of accountability, um, uh, we would argue, it means a less effective and confident civil service in a number of areas. The ones we've picked out there are running the civil service functions and uh, setting standards, managing the long term capability of uh, the government and the resources, ownership of risks, uh, coordinating between departments and setting direction, and then monitoring implementation. Um, examples, I won't run through them all, but discussing them in the report, the um, uh, pandemic contingency planning for in advance of the pandemic, uh, the test and trace, uh, uh, test and trace um, uh, system and, and structure, um, policy coordination, we'll talk more about that this afternoon, but about um, net zero. Um, and. Uh, uh, and uh, you know the the coordination of uh, of actions across across government um, have all uh, uh, suffered from this uh, this confused accountability. Um, I think there's also an additional um, a problem there, which is 
uh, it leaves the civil service more vulnerable to um, politicisation. So, uh, uh, coming on uh, uh, to the sort of the, the, the solutions, as it were, we're proposing um, a, a, a new statutory role for the civil service with a stronger underpinning in statute for the civil service. This is to uh, reinforce an impartial and permanent civil service um, and uh, grappling with some of these concepts, trying to set out uh, a clearer objective for the civil service um, uh, and also clearer responsibilities for civil servants. So the objective that we've come up with, which would be really interesting to, to discuss today, is to implement government programmes and to respond to events as directed by ministers. And the responsibility is to maintain the capability of UK governments, and particularly in certain areas like human resources, risk management and contingency planning, finance, as David was saying, uh, communication standards, and uh, so on. Um, those, that, those are necessarily sort of uh, uh, questions of um, uh, sort of um, meta questions, if you like, sort of questions of process, because uh, the content of policy, the content of uh, government work, clearly needs to um, uh, remain with ministers who are accountable uh, to Parliament. But this space, this sphere for civil service responsibility, um, uh, seems important to. Um, define. That would also then, uh, under this model, give more authority to the head of the civil service for uh, you know, running the institution, um, uh, running the functions that make up and support the capability of the civil service. So the head of the civil service, permanent secretaries working to the head of the civil service, having a clear responsibility for maintaining the capability of the state. And then added to that, because uh, uh, the, the question then arises about who the civil service uh, should be accountable to, uh, we're suggesting a board structure with uh, ministerial and non-executive uh, representation, but also clearer accountability to um, Parliament. So uh, we had various debates about the membership of the board. It would be, again, interesting to get a sense of who should, uh, who should be on this board uh, today. Um, but also critically, the board then reports to a committee in Parliament uh, uh, annually about the uh, effectiveness of the civil service in meeting that objective. Um, I said uh, the uh, graphics weren't that exciting. This was uh, the visualisation of the statute that we're uh, uh, that we're we're, uh, we're proposing. You don't need to read all of the uh, all of the details there, but we tried to encapsulate that in uh, 14 uh, clauses. It's not, the, uh, it's, it's, it's not the actual draft that you might put into uh, legislation, um, but it's a fairly succinct way of uh, describing, uh, as I've said, what the uh, sort of ongoing permanent functions of the civil service are, the objective of it, responsibilities there, and then how the system might, um, might work. Um, this is a complicated, sort of quite subtle area. And one of the things in developing uh, this uh, thinking that we've tried to do is to find a clearer settlement between the responsibilities of ministers and uh, civil servants that doesn't undermine ministers and their democratic accountability to um, parliament, but creates those clearer space for responsibilities and uh, oversight. So the benefits, as, as we would see it, um, are um, uh, that the civil service would be more accountable to parliament and to its own oversight board without undermining ministers. There's a clearer role in that objective of maintaining the responsibility, sorry, to maintain the capability of the state for uh, the long-term capability of the state, the state functions. Civil servants and the head of the civil service would be more directly responsible for setting and enforcing civil service and service benchmarks 
We'll talk more about this this afternoon, but an improved standard of policy advice and more authority for the uh, head of the civil service to broker between departments, and then better scrutiny and oversight for, um, uh, for the work that the civil service does. The area, uh, having sort of briefly set all of that out, we can get more, more into it as we go on, but the um, uh, area I thought was most interesting just to finish with were a few sort of debates, discussions, arguments that we've had about this uh, uh, proposal since we published the papers a couple of months ago. And I think there are sort of broadly three areas of debate and discussion that I'm looking forward to us getting into. The first is the sort of political control set of arguments, if you like. Um, I've, I've had people say to me both that this is um, a recipe for politicisation of the civil service because the board would be chaired by a minister uh, and, um, uh, and there would be a more explicit role for ministers and parliament in the running of the civil service. I've also had it expressed that it's an anti-democratic, you know, entrenching a perma-state of, uh, of, of ongoing bureaucracy. And I think those are both quite interesting arguments, but we've tried to thread the needle between those two in that um, I, I don't think it would lead to politicisation with a, um, with a, with a uh, ministerially chaired board overseeing the civil service and holding the head of the civil service to account. The civil service is already effectively under um, political control. It's under ministerial control. The sorts of debates and discussions that we see about, um, uh, uh, about how the civil service is run, the size of the civil service, the skills of civil servants um, uh, show that's the, the case. And actually formalising that, exposing that in a, more, uh, uh, in a, in a clearer structure would, would help. The anti-democratic argument, again, uh, ministers would still be responsible for running the civil service. Um, uh, it's entirely consistent with sort of democratic accountability for there to be institutional constraints um, that ministers have to deal with, and ultimately ministers can legislate through a majority in parliament. But again, some really interesting discussions for me about the about the sort of political control. The second area of um, discussion is about whether legislation is needed. So we're talking about a statute for the civil service. Um, uh, we had an event a couple of months ago that Lord Herbert, who's uh, uh, here, took part, and he made you know, quite a strong argument, I think, that uh, there is enough legislation already underpinning the civil service, and uh, you wouldn't introduce a, a bill that could lead to all sorts of uh, unintended consequences um, uh, and running off in different directions with um, uh, unexpected uh, um, amendments. Um, so the, the existing, as I've described it in the slides there, dab of statute that just sets up the, um, uh, the requirement for a civil service code, the, um, uh, uh, the existence of the civil service commission, few other sort of uh, modest uh, uh, statutory underpinning is sufficient. Um, I would say that I, I, th I think the last few years have shown us that it isn't sufficient. I think uh, uh, where there has been a um, uh, you know, statutory underpinning like the Civil Service Commission, that has been important, useful and necessary. And I think some of the other areas where we've seen the uh, um, uh, sort of uh, conventions and uh, responsibilities around the Civil Service uh, coming under attack would have benefited from a clearer set of um, objectives and responsibilities as set out in statute. The other argument in this area for me is that, 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 that people say that the inherent tensions over money uh, and administrative capacity can't be resolved through some sort of uh, uh, statutory uh, settlement. So uh, arguments about where resources are allocated are always 
going to be inherently political and how can you, uh, how can you uh, say that the civil service has a responsibility to, um, uh, uh, to maintain the capability of the state when the civil servants don't ultimately control uh, the money that would go to do that. Again, really interesting uh, discussion there. But I think the, the model that we're proposing creates a forum and a much more transparent way of having those, uh, having those discussions. Um, uh, the role of ministerial directions have been much... Uh, much discussed uh, recently over the uh, Rwanda uh, policy, um, uh, and I think uh, this would uh, this this model would have a crucial role for ministerial directions in uh, clarifying accountability and responsibility. And we can get get more into that as uh, uh, as as necessary. Um, and the third area of discussions that we've had over the last couple of months um, uh, are about sort of upsetting the balance of UK government. Um, uh, it undermines departments. It's a sort of centralises charter, giving the head of the civil service specific authority to, uh, to to run these things. I don't think that's the case. Secretaries of state would still determine policy. Permanent secretaries continue to be um, accounting uh, officers. Um, so I, I don't think this is a, a, a recipe for for sort of sufficient uh, for, for too much centralisation. As David says, it uh, uh, creates the conditions for the head of the civil service to set standards and set functional standards from uh, the centre. And then, uh, uh, um, uh, secondly, uh, suggestion that it creates divisions between ministers and um, uh, civil servants um, by trying to create these two sort of spheres of responsibility for capability and responsibility for policy decision making. Um, I think uh, the divisions between ministers and officials are already pretty uh, evident. Uh, I think actually being more honest about the different areas of responsibility um, would, uh, would uh, help on that. And I think it works pretty well in, in New Zealand. We've been having very interesting discussions with New Zealand counterparts where chief executives, the permanent secretary equivalents in New Zealand, have more uh, explicit responsibility for, for example, contingency planning. And that, um, uh, that works pretty well for them. Um, finally, the question, this won't actually change anything. Uh, I think it would. Uh, I think setting out clearly the um, statutory responsibilities of the uh, civil service would um, help create the conditions for um, uh, for uh, more uh, effective brokering uh, across uh, sort of coordination across government departments, um, clearer uh, abilities to um, uh, to to uh, maintain the capability of the state. Um, uh, very finally, um, this isn't the end of the story, as, as, as David said. Um, we're planning uh, a series of um, pieces of follow-up work on that. Uh, I'd highlight three broad areas. The first is, um, if you're going to set up this model, how should the civil service be held accountable to um, Parliament? Uh, how, uh, uh, what sort of information does the civil service need to provide to Parliament in order for it to be uh, held accountable, and then how should that work in practice? Second area, um, to consider how to develop that um, new statute and what it might um, look like. And then the third area, having a look at uh, how the functional agenda is doing, the standards that um, have been set from the centre to the civil service um, and, uh, and how those can best be supported and embedded. Um, I will uh, leave it there, uh, just to touch the surface of this, but I'm um, really looking forward to the, to the discussion. Thank you. Alex, thanks very much indeed uh, for setting out um, so clearly not just the argument of our report, but the counter-arguments and why we haven't, haven't bought them. When I said to Alex back in the autumn, could you actually write down this statute? Um, that we're arguing for. He went away and actually remarkably quickly came back with a draft, a refined version is, is, is um, what you were peering at up on the screen. Um, 
Well, that's tremendous. Thank you again to everyone who's joining us online. Do send in your questions now, and we will have this very much as a discussion along with the people who've, who've come to the RFG today. Let me turn to our, our panel now. Margaret, perhaps I could start with you, as Alex has put quite a lot of weight on accountability, accountability to Parliament, Parliament having more of a say in this. What do you make of what he's saying? Um, so much that uh, I'm trying to keep it keep it sort of tight. I mean, the first the first thing none of this will happen until we get a prime minister who is interested in actually uh, um, transforming the civil servants, and we've failed to do that. And, today. and we might come back to that. Not the personalities, but what would make a prime minister interested in it? Let's, 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 okay. Let's, let's come back to that afterwards because that's not a trivial point. But okay. And then the other thing is, I was going to say that it's very when you when you create these structures. Democracy is much messy, mm. and we try to look at it's a much messier sort of um, uh, uh, environment, a, a space in which you're trying to create efficiency and effectiveness. And I think we mustn't forget that when you try and mirror uh, other models uh, in the private sector or elsewhere, it's more difficult. And then the third thing I want to say, and it comes a little bit out of Canada, I think we, I would urge greater looking at what happens in local government. Because mm. in local government, there is, uh, an, an, it'll bring me to the relationship between the executive and the, uh, and the political class. Because in local government, there's, that is set out better in statute, so I'm not against having a little statute. That might help. But it also, uh, you don't take the politics out of um, uh, the decision making by local, local councillors by having um, a much clearer definition of what the, the civil servant does to what uh, the politicians do. And the, you, you must, one must remember that Newcastle, uh, New Zealand is very small. So we've just got to think, I think, look at the local government model. Uh, and Bronwyn, I sort of, I always look at these things, I sort of have four pillars at which I look at them. You know, have we got smart regulations? So is it properly, uh, properly set up? Um, is there transparency? I think transparency is key, and I'm not sure in your model that you've actually challenged that. Um, is there strong enforcement and is there proper accountability? And those seems to be two, four principles which mm. aren't, which are quite um, as sensible at looking at this. And my, my problem, I mean, I've talked to Bronwyn about it before. I said I'd do some work around it, which I failed to do properly. No, no, you, went, you, went, and, you, you went and talked to people. So this was about how other countries do accountability and how they difficult. approach it. And it is very difficult. Very what, difficult what did you find when well, you... I think, I think in the, the end, our, the relationship we have between ministers and the civil servants uh, has to be thrown up and rethought completely. And I'm not sure your statute does that, because what, it, what you talk about within the statute is, well, we already have ministers who carry on doing policy, civil servants will carry on um, uh, uh, being executive. And that just doesn't work, and it's littered with examples. I mean, even the pincher example is really interesting. The executive should be a check and a balance on the civil on on the politicians. And what's happened here? It wasn't the existing civil servants who felt able to tell the truth about what had happened. It was an ex-civil servant who came forward, uh, protected by that to do that. So the that check and balance is not there, which is why I think accountability. So I would throw the Armstrong. Mem um, uh, conventions up in the air, and I would rewrite those. In in what way? Um, I would make I would have much greater transparency about 
uh, both policy making and the implementation of policy making uh, so that uh, there is transparent. So you know, what does that mean, that you can get the minutes the advice, of who said yeah, what? And, and then we'll come to the select committees. Which yeah. we're, I'm sorry I'm banging on a bit. But, but, no, 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 uh, I'm asking. So uh, I, I, would, I, I would open up much more the advice that ministers get from civil servants on the development of policy mm. and the implementation of policy. I'd open that up to much greater public account. I don't think that, again, that won't take the politics out of it. Mm. I think it'll get us much better policy making. It'll get us sort of stronger, more sustainable and lasting mm. uh, uh, decisions around policy. And in doing that, I would then strengthen um, uh, the role. So I would make the civil service much more directly accountable to the public through Parliament, which is in the, you come to the select committees. Yeah. And I think there, uh, what I think uh, you need to do is have much greater access to papers, and that would allow you to look at the policy. Um, uh, I, I think you need, there is too close a relationship between the bureaucracies that administer Parliament and the bureaucracy that administers government. Mm. And I think you have to separate that in a much clearer way, so there is, you know, the uh, the, uh, the the parliament, the, the way in which parliament is then a, holds the executive to cut to account it much stronger. That comes from my experience in the PAC, mm. where all too often when I try to go tough on somebody, I found that the House of Commons administration, more than anybody else, was trying to prevent me <laughs> holding them properly to account. So I would uh, do that, and, and I would therefore strengthen the capability to support select committees mm. with a very independent um, uh, 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 administration in Parliament, answerable really to Parliament, not attending the, the weekly cabinet meetings and all mm. those sort of things that I think mm. uh, do it. And just on some of the issues, finally, if I can. You, know, you, can. you can. You can. This is a discussion. And that we wanted to take the time to, to tease out these issues. So uh, for one, normally I'm racing the clock. Not, not on this one. Okay, finally, can I talk about... I mean, I think the idea that you'd have a separate civil service that could then preempt resources, which it would have to do if it had those functions, is for the birds, that won't happen. Uh, and, you know, if, if we look at uh, uh, the pande pandemic, for example, the decisions not to have PPE, the, P the PPE equipment there it was a decision taken somewhere. God knows, we'll, we'll, we might one day find out where. But that would have been a political decision on the distribution of resources. And it's, it's, I think it's too difficult to try and uh, uh, define issues which are sort of preempt the resource distribution uh, before, uh, other, before everything else. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, what we haven't tackled, the way in, I, in which I see the politicisation of the executive comes from the uh, development of special advisors, the growth of the special advisors. And I have to say, which Ian will want to talk about, NEDs. I think NEDs, the non uh, the NEDs have become increasing politicised appointments, um, uh, where the loyalty is much more to the uh, politicians than to uh, looking at efficiency and effectiveness. And I think if you're going to do anything about strengthening the uh, civil service, you've got, to, it's a really tough agenda. I haven't got easy answers to it, but that politicization that we have seen and the appointment of ministers and the appointment of people who go on to all the, all the, uh, the, 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 the uh, 
agencies and government agencies. It's yeah. become such a political, um, such a political thing that we are damaging there. Mm the administration and executive. Um, so, I, and I think you, you have to tackle that issue. Not, I'm give, not giving you answers on it, but I think you have to tackle uh, that issue. And then one final thing as well, which is the sort of politicization, a slight corruption of government, because we have seen that over a period, is also we have to look at things like revolving doors, which I don't know whether, you know, which is another way in which I think, um, uh, <coughs> questionable influences then determine the effectiveness and the priorities of, uh, of government. So there's too much politicization. I don't think you can take the decisions about how money is distributed out in the way that you're suggesting. Margaret, um, thanks very much indeed. And there's a couple of points, uh, there's more than a couple of points in there, in there that I'm going to come back to you on. But thank you very much um, for taking us straight into this question of accountability to Parliament. Ian, uh, you have a lot of notes there. Yes. And, um, the, but the first point, um, if I could steer you towards the first point I'd, I'd love you to talk about before, before expanding on those is one that David um, mentioned centrally, which is that um, the question of how far the head of the civil service can run the organisation, whether this yeah. needs to be strengthened. Well, look, can I maybe do the political trick of not answering that question and answering sort of the one I came with, which I suppose includes that one. Um, that, that was that one. In, yeah, in, I mean, in context, yeah, yeah. I will. Yeah. But Because I think what we've got is to build on Margaret's yeah. point is we've got a meta problem into which this civil service issue fits. And it's, I think the civil service, as we've discussed often, the constitution is necessary but not sufficient to solve all the issues in government. So it's a key issue, but it interplays with a lot of the issues that, that Margaret's raised. And so... I think we've got a systemic problem that there isn't a system, essentially. We've got a fragmented government which does not operate to a coherent, sustainable strategic plan. And, and David's analysis of the difference between corporate world and what I saw in, in Whitehall is that there is no integrated corporate strategy. There's a series of things which ultimately are only mediated probably by the Prime Minister or at number 10. So I completely agree with Margaret. There's no way a civil service board could do major star chamber type trade-offs because that ultimately is a political call and it's worked effectively I think when the quad was working that was one of the better examples of actually how that trade-off can be made to work but then th there is fundamentally not enough of a central system with then distributive responsibility so I think the points on accountability and responsibility are great but the fundamental framework is missing to allow a lot of this stuff to work effectively and Compounded with the other problem related to that, which is the politicians on the whole are not as interested in government as I would have expected. Um, they're interested in the politics of it, but actually delivery is, is much further down the list. So I think unless you've got a machine with a strategic plan with, and I think one of the works when we looked at the New Zealand stuff was really interesting, with customer outcome measures in it, what, what is government doing for citizens and people it impacts, and then the accountability loop to say, well, if you're trying to have that outcome, how well have we done? What do we need to do to change the plan? And you go around that continuous improvement loop. Just, there's all those conditions which are, frankly, and I think you're right, Margaret, much easier in corporate life. Government's much more complicated, much messier, much grayer. But the systemic gap means that a lot of good stuff just doesn't get done because the framework isn't there. Now, the second level on, on this, I think it is really important that civil service capability is taken seriously. And I think that does mean that things like the functional agenda, the quality of people, the training and development of those people is given to the civil head of the civil service as a, as a job. You know, you are responsible for the quality. 
And I was surprised, as I sort of learnt my way into government, to sort of not see that structure. There were bits of it and looks, vestigial examples of it that looked like the head of a civil service was, was actually there. But when I got to my experience of being a DWP and I was looking at the centre, it was a very different picture. And, and I think it is actually time to try and break that sort of link and say, no, the quality of civil service is a national, you know, of national governmental importance, and we should have someone who is responsible for that yeah. capability development, functional capability, boring but important things, as David has often discussed, like a chart of accounts that everyone can understand and a common system are really important. And the fragmentation that we have is a reflection of the fact that the head of civil service has influence and, re and reflected power from the Prime Minister, but surprisingly little real reach into, into departments. So I think... Okay, may I just ask yeah. you at that point that the counter-argument that Alex mentioned is often <coughs> thrown at, at us at this point is um, what if you give the head of the civil service all those responsibilities um, but he or she doesn't have control of the money? Uh, well, I think, I think you can set out the, the budget, you know, to my mind, the, the, the difference I draw in the money bit is I wouldn't say money for poli big policy decisions like do you build HS2 political... Money for how much money do we invest in training and developing our civil service should be derogated to this, to this board. It should be absolutely empowered to them. And I never understood the argument that the PermSec made, which is um, I want to decide my own FD, for example, uh, in a way that a subsidiary of a large company would have the group FD and the, and the local uh, CEO would decide together. And the functional capability of that person is absolutely determined by the function. So it is a matrix organisation. Mm. Mm. And I can't see any reason to reinvent the wheel 26 times, which is what mm. the departments are doing. But who decides... Uh, what does it do to the responsibilities of the head of the, if the, of the civil service if someone, yeah. if a politician decides, for example, that the civil service should be, say, 91,000, uh, yes. smaller in number? Well, look, I mean, this is the never-ending cycle of how... how particularly the um, spending review um, works. But, I, I mean, to, at least in my mind, if you had a structure and a sort of strategic plan, you could have a strategic five-year conversation rather than pick a number out, out of the air. And I think you would talk about, are we investing in the capability of those people rather than the absolute sort of sums involved? And I think without that counterweight of saying, well, what level of quality do we want? You know, in particularly systems, HR, finance, and, and also project management. I mean, there's been a huge improvement in the project management of, of the capability of the government, but it was non-existent mm. sort of five to ten years ago. There weren't even trained project managers. So there shouldn't be a debate about do we need you know, data analysts, do we need program managers. That should be a professional civil service derogation, and it has no impact on... You know, I would have thought, you know, my view would be a minister would welcome the fact he'd have high-quality high civil servants to help him or mm. uh, do that stuff. Mm. Um, but in the final point, uh, I'd just like to pick on the politicisation. I'm sitting here mm. now as a chair of an ALB in the shape of Channel 4, and I, my observation is over the five, well, let, let, certainly the last five years, much more political scrutiny of appointments than, than I've ever seen. The NED model has shifted, um, particularly with mm. Michael Gove, into a much more of a SPAD ministerial role. And I do agree that I think both of those are dangerous. I think that there is a lack of check and balance. And mm. I think uh, my personal view is that we shouldn't have you know, members of the House of Lords as non-exec directors. And I tried to sort of maintain that when I was lead non-exec, because I think we need distinction between the legislative and the executive um, mm. capabilities. And you know, in the same way that in my PLC existence, I welcome deeply independent, principled, useful, diverse people as being incredibly important for the health of the organisation. I think the same is true for departments and government. Ian, thanks very much indeed.
Um, some great questions coming in and some responding to Ian and, and Margaret, so thank you for that. I'm going to come to them in a moment. Jonathan, what do you make of this? And you've seen this um, Clear. Uh, <laughs> at close quarters. Um, what, what do you make, obviously, um, of the statutory pitch that Alex has made? But I um, also would love your views on yeah. what you have heard already. Yeah. Well, um, so I, th I am persuaded of the case for a statute um, on the basis that we have a lack of clarity over all the things we're talking about now. I, I don't believe for a moment that legislation can, of itself, solve everything. I spent quite a lot of my time as a government lawyer persuading ministers they didn't need legislation <laughs> or that it would be a bad idea. But sometimes it can help. As with a, you know, with a contract, the process of drawing up the contract helps you define terms and the rules of engagement and allocates roles and responsibilities and all the rest of it. And if all goes well, you put the contract away and you never need to look at it yeah. uh, unless there's a row or a problem. But at the moment, we do have a problem. Mm. Um, a, because of the lack of clarity over the, the, the role and responsibility, the, the, the allocation of roles and responsibilities that we've heard about. And more, you know, in the real world, day to day, if you have ministers accusing civil servants of thwarting policy mm. or civil servants being put in the position of having to lie or do other unpalatable things mm. um, or, the, or the kind of constant um, running battle over you know, who decides whether civil servants should be in the office or not. Now, day to day, mm. this is not a functioning set of relationships. So um, I think legislation could help to set some parameters, set some rules, um, and it won't necessarily solve all the problems, but it will give you some help. And if you, if you to take an example that we keep coming back to, we posited the idea that the civil service should somehow have some ongoing responsibility for uh, long-term planning for emergencies, for example, or for the long-term health and capability of the civil service. Well, I'm not sure whether every politician would agree with that. Um, but let's have a go at defining it and getting some agreement. And then if a permanent secretary at some point is faced with the kind of um, challenge I think that, that Margaret's talking about, he, uh, a permanent secretary says, look, I've got, I've, you know, I've got this legal responsibility to plan for emergencies. It's going to cost some money, and this is what I think I should do. And the secretary of state says, well, I'm not interested in any of that, and why should you have any money for it? Well, you've got a legal responsibility that the permanent secretary can point to. Now, that's not of itself going to solve the problem. You then have some kind of mechanism for helping to solve the problem, to resolve what is by now a conflict, which is what a contract would do. Um, and that might be the board that's been suggested. It might ultimately be, which I think is really your model, that if in the end the prime minister decides... Yeah. Hmm. Um, so it is a political question if it's about allocation of resources or competing priorities the Prime Minister decides and that may be the model um, but at least you've got a kind of legal process which acknowledges the existence of the competing roles gives the Permanent Secretary a kind of legal hook on which he can have the debate which we don't have at the moment um, and then has a mechanism, a dispute resolution mechanism if you like or an accountability mechanism which ultimately resolves the problem hmm. and There will be lots of variants of this, but the basic point, I think, is you've got a problem at the moment. You don't have clarity over any of those things, mm. um, and legislation could help to mm. set one up. 
Thanks very much indeed for that. And again, I've got loads of questions, but I'm not going to take mine now. I'm going to take yours. Um, and uh, unusually, because this is a conference, uh, and it's not simply a conversation or an event, and we have a bit more time, uh, I'm going to say that if people want to make their own comments, not just put them in question form, that is okay. Um, and uh, some of those are coming in, in, in now. Uh, is there anyone in the room who'd like to kick us off? Excellent. At, at, the, at the back here. And if you'd like to say who you are, that is great. Uh, Dave Perman, General Secretary of uh, the FDA. Um, when you talk about this kind of role of the centre and strengthening the centre, I think the closest we ever got to it, um, in, in my experience, has been uh, from about 2010 to 2015, when actually what we had was strong political leadership around... The, the Minister for the Cabinet Office, Francis Maud, I did not agree with a lot of things he did. But when you talk about things like the project management skills, those were part of, of his drive around um, both efficiency and improving uh, the skills of the civil service. And I just wonder, whatever kind of constitutional settlement you think might come and settle some of this stuff, unless it comes with real political weight, it's just going to fall apart as, as we're seeing. You know, I mean, you could have this situation but if four ministers are going to come up with a number based on 2016 for the size of the civil service, everything you talk about falls apart. And I just, I, I just wonder how strong you think actually there has to be political will behind this to make it work rather than a, a, a legislative or kind of constitutional settlement. Who'd like to, Alex, do you want to? Do you want me to briefly, briefly come on this? Because yeah. I want to hear what others say really, but I think... I completely agree. You, ab you absolutely need political will, political focus to both sort of change and sustain the civil service. And I also completely agree with Margaret that politics is messy. This is not... There are going to be periods of uh, sort of a better, uh, you know, stronger, more interested political leadership of the civil service and periods of less interested political leadership of the civil service. Uh, that, that's, that's going to be a cycle or a sort of rhythm or whatever. I think the benefit, and it goes to what Jonathan was saying, of having an underpinning statute is it gives you a sort of base level of, um, uh, of, of uh, authority there. I agree that, um, uh, that uh, the politics could disrupt it, but if you have a board that would have been chaired, let's say, by Francis Maud, might be chaired by, until yesterday, Steve Barclay, uh, uh, now um, there is a there is a um, there's a structure there to have those discussions and more um, uh, uh, you know more formal underpinning than, than we have that allows that authority to be exercised. Yes, sometimes better, sometimes worse. And I think this goes a little bit to the again to Margaret's points and Jonathan's points about local government and you know local government. Goodness knows isn't perfect, and I completely recognise the um, the the. Uh, essential political nature of resource allocation decisions. But as Jonathan said, if you have uh, certain legal obligations uh, and responsibilities on permanent secretaries and a forum for deciding those and a, uh, and a forum that gives the head of the civil service a certain amount of authority to, you know, to, to run the machine, then you're going to be better placed yeah. than we are at the moment. Could I just... Sorry. Go on, you go. Just to add, I completely agree with, you know, my experience was that when there's political interest in this topic, it gets traction. Yeah. And uh, having just said that Michael Gove has politicised some of his appointments, he is actually, yeah. to be fair, 
the person that's been most interested in this topic. And I was really hopeful for a time that we'd see essentially almost like a deputy PM type level of interest in this. Because it, I think you're right, it does need that level of traction. And when we're talking about the composition of the board, we had a few conversations because we sort of started saying, well, sure, surely the Prime Minister should run this because it's the government. I think realistically you won't get the bandwidth, but it's effectively like a deputy PM level role and somebody has to therefore care about it. So I think it's absolutely vital that the politicians own this agenda rather than just think it's a dry political... Okay, but going uh, to my question there, which you, yeah. you or Margaret could, could answer, what would make a Prime Minister um, interested, necessarily, in, necessarily interested in this, <laughs> not just as a, as a quirk of personality or political history? Um, what would make him do it? We don't want to go I mean, into I think, quirks of personality. I mean, the, the first thing I was going to do is say, is, you know, let's get real. If you're sitting in health and it's a choice between cutting waiting lists and investing in PPE, where would the money go? You know, that's the, sort of, that's the, the real politique and the money would go in, in, in cutting the waiting list. So that's it. I think, Brom and I come back to this really boring, accountability. So if you do have a legislative framework, which you think might help, um, create a more rational approach to uh, 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 the allocation of resources to, to keep a strong um, civil service. I think the only way you can do it is the head of the civil service will have to be able to go openly to the relevant select committee of parliament. Uh, and we will have to see transfer. Maybe we should see the minutes of this board meeting. In, you know, maybe all that should be open to uh, uh, parliamentary scrutiny. And that, that would be the only way of trying to keep some sort of rational um, uh, oversight which keeps it going. That's the only thing I can think of. I'd, I'd offer one other slightly, this is going to sound incredibly self-serving as a trustee of the Institute, but I, I, I am also really struck by how little training ministers get in terms of how they run, how to run departments. And I think something which actually it requires training for every junior minister, you have to have some form of training, not necessarily just courtesy of the IFG, but anywhere else, about the me mechanics and the machinery of government, because people are so uninformed when they hit. I don't know if, Nick, your, your experience was, was like that when you, when you encountered it, but actually illustrating the systemic and sort of you know, managerial side mm. of being a minister, because you just don't get the preparation for it, which is why the local government example is interesting, because most people have probably worked their way through mm. something, and they, they know the system. In a lot of people, they're landing in ministerial roles with absolutely no idea of what they're doing. So why would they be interested? Mm. The Institute does offer private coaching yeah. for ministers um, as, as they're taking their, uh, their jobs. And we're setting up the Academy uh, to bring our How to Do It work together under Hannah White, uh, Deputy Director. Jonathan, did you want to chip in something? Well, I, 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 to say the obvious, first of all, um, you ne never get any legislation unless there's political will for it. Um, as some of us were saying earlier, that um, the Constitution and the role of the civil service, these, are, these are, ought to be very boring questions <laughs> on which you know, politicians are not very interested most of the time. Um, as we've been saying, actually, they should be. I and mean, this is partly about persuading politicians that there is a problem to be solved um, and that the problem ultimately is about the, the, the effectiveness of their government. Um, and I, so this is what it takes to persuade the Prime Minister or senior ministers that this is worth investing in and, and legislative time and so on, is persuading them that actually there's a real world problem and this can help solve it. Easier mm. said than done. Thank you. There's lots of hands up in the room and thank you. And I'm going to come to you in a, in a, in a second. Uh, I'd like to take one online from Rachel Gore of uh, the Department for Leveling Up and Housing and Communities. 
and she says, in terms of civil service cultural change, how could we reshift the mechanism of policy making from officials crafting policies based on what is deliverable to one where policy process is genuinely driven by goals of providing sound and objective recommendations? Alex, I'm looking at you. Sounds like this afternoon. Yes, it may be. You're all right. You give us a taste of this afternoon. Conflict between the two. You want goals and sound, but you want it to be deliverable. And I think actually it was something that David said in his early contribution. You know, I would say you want the two, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put them against each other. In your early contribution, one of the problems with the civil service we're talking, which is slightly off piste, Bromwich, is that you there is status in developing policy. There is absolutely no status within the civil service in implementing policy. And until you tackle that, I always used to think that the people who create the policy should then have to live it. Must implement it. Must implement it. And um, you've got to create a career structure which facilitates that and gives them proper rewards along that journey. But it's crazy that we have got that thing. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Great. I can see Tom Sass, who's going to be presenting the, this afternoon's work on policymaking, sitting, sitting right there. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, I, wasn't gonna, I, I won't take Tom's thunder, but um, I, mean, I, I, I agree, I think. But I think two, uh, it, it prompted two thoughts. One, totally agree with Margaret. It shouldn't be uh, one or the other. Um, I, I do think the civil service should could and should get better at, um, at what uh, it would call in the jargon multidisciplinary teams, I think. Um, uh, having one team that is assembled to address a problem, you know, FE, as uh, David was saying earlier, that then um, holds that problem uh, through the whole uh, cycle is the right thing to do. I think that team doesn't necessarily have to be led by a policy person. The sort of classic model would be that the, um, the policy official would um, be the convener of that team, I, I think this, that's, that's not you know, necessarily and an, an always the right model. And so um, uh, combining and sustaining those teams seems like an, an important change to make. I, the, the second point was just, and I think Simon Case said something interesting in a lecture he gave in Newcastle uh, last October, which was that the sort of the traditional model was, uh, or the traditional assumption about the UK civil service was that um, the, the policymakers were the, were the elite and were the, uh, the highly skilled ones and that there was something, you know, the, as Francis Moore, the blue-collar um, uh, implementers uh, had lower status. I think there's something interesting in the pandemic where that slightly flipped around um, and actually it was the policymaking functions that really struggled under the intensity of the um, immediate pandemic response and some of the people uh, closer to uh, operations and delivery who stepped yeah. up to the mark. Mm. Thanks. Okay, great. Let's go. Let's go here uh, by the fireplace. Okay. Um, hello, I'm Tony Travers from the London School of Economics. I mean, it seems to me that the the discussion, as it is so often in this room, is a rational one, rational people. And of course, the great thing about the current government is a sort of limiting case, isn't it? It's a useful way of being able to answer, the, ask the question: Would the kind of rational proposal set out by Alex? work with any government in any circumstances? And the answer is, well, if they can't, then they won't work. I mean, any imaginable government. So this government is quite useful in that sense because it, it, it offers a way of saying, would the kind of proposals suggested work with this government? Mm. That's come up several times indirectly. Mm. So in that sense, uh, and if not, why not? So that would be the first thing. The other thing, referring to something Margaret said, I mean, the thing is that the kind of 
discussions that also have gone on this room many times before, are at some level, if we just put aside what's going on as we speak, the scale of government is so large, so big, that the money that's spent is so great that it's de facto infinite. Government is infinite. It's too big to imagine. There's a big reform of the NHS going on as we speak. I defy anybody to describe how the NHS is run in their area, how you'd hold any of the money to account in your area, get anything done locally. These things are too complicated, too big for anybody uh, rationally to come to terms with. If you go outside the building, when you leave today, you'll be able to look at the streets and make a judgment about the city of Westminster and its chief executive, Stuart Love. Are the streets paved? Are they lit? Are they clean? You can make a judgment about that. Go up into Soho, it won't be quite as beautiful looking, but you can still make a judgment again. Jeremy Pocklington, who's the permanent secretary at DLUC, who's overseeing local government, how much, has the, how much has he contributed as a senior civil servant? I'm not picking on these two individuals other than we happen to be located here. Yeah. So going back to Margaret's point, if government were not operating at such a massive scale, and given the procedures in local government for holding its chief officers to account, would it be easier to hold government to account? We know trust is higher in local politicians than national ones. Lots of evidence about that. So I think this, the scale of government may actually make the, all the reforms suggested here more difficult um, to de deliver on their objectives, not because they're not good proposals, but because the scale of government renders it infinite. Really interesting points, Tony. Thank you very much indeed. Jonathan, may, may I turn to you first? Would these proposals work with this government? So I, obviously I'm a lawyer and there's a risk of me instantly leaping to kind of legal solutions. And I promise you, I, I don't do that and wouldn't normally do it. I mean, I think this government just at the moment is unlikely to want to implement these proposals anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> but if they had already existed, would they help? And my, my answer is, I think they would have helped. Yeah. Because actually, for better or worse, one of the few constraints on any government, particularly this one, is the law. I mean, it doesn't particularly like the fact there, is, there are legal constraints, and in various ways it's tried to dilute them. But nonetheless, the law, the law is kind of there, and ultimately is capable of being enforced, and in my example, it is something that a civil servant can point to. So a civil servant now can at least point to the, the civil service code and the existing legislation, and it's there in black and white. It can't be wished away uh, as a constraint. Um, and that's why I favour a model where there is some legal underpinning. However, um, uh, uh, it may be no more than a framework, but at least it would help, uh, and it would force ministers ultimately to have the conversation. If you had some kind of governance body, well, that would have some legal status. So um, it won't solve everything, but my view is that having some kind of legal yeah. baseline that the government can't just wish away and can't at least completely ignore would help. And then you, you get into the more complicated question of precisely what it would look like. And as I say, I don't, I don't see this government being up for that conversation. But over time, if we can have it, then I think it would help. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that. And although I do take the point, Tony, there'll be variations of sort of compliance, shall we, shall we say. But I think it, it, from my side, experience working with civil service, they do take that seriously. And it is, it is the sort of thing they need in that conversation with politicians who might be pushing. In, in terms of your point about scale, which is, is brilliant, I mean, it's a, it's a really major issue. Uh, you put it beautifully. Yeah, uh, it's a great, great yeah. point. And, and particularly in the, in the temptation of a you know, series of economic pandemic crisis, which we can sort of print our way out of, apparently, with, 
with impunity, there is a temptation just to keep going bigger. Um, my normal answer to that is that what you should have is a sort of structure of delegation and authority which says certain decisions are meta and have to be taken at this level. And with Jeremy Pocklington, there'll be sort of four or five of those big decisions about allocation of budgets. Where organisations, and I would take the private world, you know, we dealt with a multi-billion pound company, and the only way you can do that with 80,000 people is you set a series of frameworks and decision-making is clear about who's spending what money where, and the accountability, to follow up Margaret's point, has to follow it. So the NHS, in theory with ICPs, you should be able to have that conversation in a geographic, place-based um, way, which wasn't possible before. The logic's great. I worry to death about how it's going to be implemented and how, the, how obviously it'll be traded off. But I think unless you can construct the delegated authority and say, well, who's spending what at what level, you'll never understand it. But I think that's why accountability is so important, is that we have to have a framework against which you can hold people accountable. Uh, and, and it is big and complicated, but, and it's getting harder because of that scale point. Mm, thank you. OK, let's, let's go over here. There's a question. Uh, yep. Anthony, but you need a microphone. Because you can be heard. And also to say who you are for the record. Thank so, you. Anthony Selden, and uh, can I say I agree uh, with uh, much of, uh, if not everything, that Margaret and Ian and Jonathan and Alex, you have been saying. I just want to just get back to uh, are we being bold enough? Are we being just a little bit too English, British here uh, about it? Uh, we found it at the Times, um, the Education Commission looking at, we, we've reported in a year, uh, really our deplorable education system in Britain, which we hear a lot about how good it is, but by most measures it is failing and it's absurdly out of uh, touch with modern technology that we haven't perhaps heard enough about uh, yet uh, and modern practices and what's happening abroad. We are incredibly insular. Now coming back to David's questions that he posed at the beginning about what IFG was created for and is it achieving enough? Uh, I think IFG is a wonderful organization. I think if we're going to get leadership anywhere in this country, it's going to come from this organization. Um, but let's look at government in the last six years. By any standard, uh, we haven't had a glorious period of premiership or indeed uh, ministers. Michael Gosby mentioned he is one of the remarkably few effective uh, cabinet uh, ministers. By the end of this year, we're likely to have a new uh, head of the civil service and likely to have a new uh, prime minister. That will be the fourth within six years. That is a rate of churn, which is wholly unacceptable. Um, so what is it that we can be doing? Uh, well, David mentioned at least two of them. What works best? There's, we need a civil service on top of everything that you say, which you are so right in, in what you pointed out. We need a civil service that looks much better at what works best in this country and abroad. I uh, love that point about, uh, was it hereditary peers and fox hunting? Apart from that, pretty much, you know, there's an awful lot more to be learned about what's happening abroad. Uh, secondly, much more on the long term, um, uh, one of Jeremy Hayward's points, and by the way, uh, Boris Johnson uh, was going around saying, I need my Jeremy. Well, I'm sorry, chum, but you actually destroyed the structure on which Jeremy Hayward, for whom Alex worked, was able to achieve as much as he did, but one of the last things he said to me was we are not nearly good enough at looking after the long-term problems here. We're far too focused on jerky, reactive uh, government. I'd love to see uh, more there, and also more on something that 
IFG has been in the lead on, which is learning from history. How can we learn uh, from what has happened more? And not the least, you get in every new prime minister who comes in, trashes uh, their predecessors, of course, uh, chucks out uh, civil service people who actually know how to do things, brings in new teams, know nothings, and hey presto, they find out uh, that, that nothing is working. So leadership nationally is urgent, point one and two, if IFG can't provide it, it ain't going to happen. Great. <laughs> they are growing. No pressure. No pressure. Just save the country. <laughs> we're not setting out to provide leadership. We're setting out to provide a model for can I, recommendations can, for how it, how it ought to work better. Margaret. Can I just come in on, on the one thing in the long term? You know, this is so hard because it's so obviously true. If we could have a longer, ter, a longer, a longer view, it'd be right. But just think about it. So, what, you know, we've had three prime ministers in, what have you said, four, four, four years. Politics doesn't work like that. That's the, that. So the guys that we're putting, the, the, you know, the people that we're putting at the top of, at, at the top of these organisations just move too much. And I was a you know, minister under most of the Blair years, and it was dreadful. You know, it takes you six months to come to grips with your, uh, your portfolio. And then three months later, you know, you're sitting there in the car waiting for the phone call to say, oh, you've got a job. And if you've got a job, where will you be moved to? Mm. So actually Cameron did that better. But with the instability at the top, we've, we're in a yeah. terrible position. And it's the same with the civil service. What civil servant sits in a job for more than two years? When I was children's minister, which is the job I held for most, I always tell this story. I had it for about two years, two and a half years, I can't remember. By the end of my period there, I had more institutional memory than any of the people I was working with. Mm. That's shocking. And David must have had more institute because he was the one, he was the only one in the Labour government who kept his job right the way through. But it was shocking. So, you know, there's something we could do about civil service and career progression and all that. It's very difficult to do anything about uh, politics. And this inability to learn from history, I do keep thinking, you know, as one gets older, you keep thinking you watch the same thing happening yeah. again and again and again. And I talk to, I spend a lot of time mentoring my younger colleagues now. And I think, oh my God, we did this, we tried that. It was exactly the same really problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and we, never, we never are able to learn. We do not learn from history. <laughs> uh, and I don't know how you, in, how you could institutionalize in a more effective way a capability within the both government or, or and within politics which would enable you to do that and there's a lot people are great at just uh, the final thing i was going to say politicians particularly you want to leave a legacy you're there you've got to do it yesterday because you'll be gone tomorrow mm. so there's an absolute sort of imperative on doing it straight away mm. and the best you, thing you can do is the easiest thing you can do is destroy what happened in the past and once you cut something down yeah. it takes you forever to rebuild it it's much easier to cut and to rebuild. So that whole thing, I, um, I, for me, it was urban regeneration under when I was, before I was a, um, a, 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 an MP and when I was in local government. I think we had a new initiative on urban regeneration every ruddy year. And we all know that if you are actually going to do something that uh, really impacts and starts to transform life opportunities, you have got to do it over a 10, 15 year period. Uh, and it just never happens. And I think there's a great destruction. That's another thing. It's a very, politics is quite a destructive force in that you're always undoing 
I mean, I'm seeing them now on the trial, on the early years stuff. We did some really good work around early years, uh, you know, with the, with, the, with the framework, the educational framework and the qualification. That's all been absolutely hammered. It'll take forever to rebuild. And there is no, no learning at all from why we did it and what was behind it and, and trying to sit it out. Easy to destroy it and say, oh, we're doing something about cost of living. Pathetic. Okay. Alex, and maybe you'd want to tuck into this your um, uh, recommendations on civil servants not moving around as often and what could be done about pay and promotion. Yeah, co completely. And again, it touches a little bit on some of the uh, uh, afternoon stuff, but we we do, you know, recognising politics is messy, uh, that, you know, and, 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 and rightly so. Democracy is messy, you know, uh, d debate is messy, but we do have a permanent civil service. And so I suppose for, for me, partly this is about... Uh, maximizing the use of that asset uh, and doing it in a way that is consistent with democratic accountability and, um, uh, and a sort of thriving pl plural democracy that goes through its, it, you know, its, its more or less stable periods. But, um, but it, it exists, so sort of let's, let's make the most of it, which comes back to Bromin's point there about, um, about you know, certainly I, I experienced it. I, I worked for five and a half years on constitutional and electoral stuff, but I think every other job I was spinning around uh, quite often, so it's part of, part of the problem. But I com completely recognise that, uh, uh, that the incentives that operate on civil servants, and I think it's less about pay, but I do think it's about promotion. Um, uh, so pay matters, but it's the status and associated pay that comes with promotion that really bites on civil servants and I think you're far more likely to get promoted uh, if you do uh, three jobs in five years rather than one job in five years that includes uh, implementation. So what should be done about that? Um, so I think it's well it's it's changing the rewards for promotion yeah. in order to get promoted you need to have demonstrated that you have done that stint and that you have uh, solid uh, implementation and delivery uh, record to your name. There's always going to be a space for the courtier civil servant who is able to fix problems and uh, put fires out for ministers and, uh, and, and, and do that. But alongside that, uh, mm. uh, officials uh, you know, need to be able to demonstrate that they've done, uh, mm. done that in order to get promoted. Mm. Very, very briefly, just on international comparisons, because um, I was a little bit, um, uh, I was a, a, a bit sceptical about international comparisons, and I completely take Margaret's point about New Zealand being quite different, but I, the scales fell from my eyes a bit when I spoke to a, a colleague in New Zealand um, uh, a little while ago, and he said, um, he said, of course everywhere's different, but, you know, we're a small country, but uh, on some things, we compare ourselves to and draw experience from Westminster-style democracies. On others, we look to Southeast Asia because it's our neighbourhood. On others, we're the size of, you know, Greater Birmingham. So we look to Birmingham for... So it's, it's having these sort of mm, yeah. subtlety to look to the, the comparisons that matter and that, that work that I do think we need to mm. be better at internationally. Mm. Anyway, I'll stop. Jonathan, I don't want to dip too much into this uh, notion of turnover because it's, it's central to what we're talking about this afternoon and policymaking, but you were ahead of a uh, group of specialised people, the, 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 you know, the, the government um, lawyers. How did you... Well, um, well, I won't bore people with my specialist subject, which is how we reformed the legal function in government. <laughs> but one thing we did do is basically bring it all together in one as a function. Very good. Uh, so we could manage it. Uh, and that included definitely managing people's careers um, and tr trying to avoid the excessive churn. Maybe it's easier to do, though, when you have a particular specialist cadre and you, you already have a kind of base level of, of, of transferable skills. 
Um, so, but, but I think there are, probably are um, things that can be learned from that model. Uh, and it does require a bit of command and control. So one of the advantages of, of what is now the government legal department that I helped set up and led was that ultimately I could make these decisions yeah. um, uh, through a board and so on about how people moved and what the rules were and how people got promoted. And if you could somehow upscale that, yep. much more difficult to do. I mean, I had, what, two, 3,000 people. Well, okay, that's um, big enough to be able to do interesting things with, but it's obviously not the same kind of scale that uh, applies to other bigger functional groupings, let alone the whole civil service. But there is something about that model, and ultimately it is about having the power to make decisions and implement them. Um, and it may be, I think this is probably less true now, uh, at the time, that felt, I mean, I had the consent of the then Attorney General for doing what I did as my minister. I certainly had the support of Jeremy Hayward at the time. I had the consent of uh, the support of Francis Maud because he liked this kind of thing. So um, <laughs> it worked. And most of what I was doing was below the political radar. Um, so I could get on and do it with proper political cover and consent. I suspect that wouldn't be true now um, because everything is politicized. Um, so it may have been at the time it was just a bit easier to do it. Um, but there are certainly some lessons there, I hope. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a couple of... There were some very, very good questions come in online. I want to take a couple of them now. Um, one from Amy on... Uh, uh, she's saying, where does the IFG stand on ease of dismissing civil servants? Should we be protecting civil servants and hence, theoretically, at least giving them confidence to challenge? or sharpening accountability and incentives to perform while that's directed at the IFG. I think everyone is going to have views on that. And let me take a second one from Hartley Miller. Should the National Audit Office's remit be expanded so that it can assess and report on the capability of the civil service and of departments to deal with anticipated situations, initiatives and crises, including civil service training, planning, structure, and all the things we've been talking about? Thank you for both those questions. Um, Who'd like to start, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think the topic of the civil service employment, I, I did find it very peculiar that we couldn't change the, um, some of the people in the department that were clearly not performing, frankly. And I, I know this is a difficult subject, but it, if I can compare it to corporate life, we're not looking to politicize people through hire and fire techniques, but there should be more capability to assemble teams and then change teams if people work and don't work. And I think. I would just appeal for equality with the sort of corporate world in that sense, that you don't just go around firing people for the sake of it, but you do have to have flexibility. And I think, I think it's a small issue in the civil service. It's not as bad as the churn issue, but it is an issue that needs, needs addressing. I don't think it's the but top of my list. I'm, I'm deducing from the flavor of what you're saying that you also want a, a, a bit of corporate firmness in moving people yeah. out of the civil service if it is not working. If it's not working. I think realistically any organisation... Rather than has, round and round. Yeah, rather than this endless shuffle. And, um, and I think it's almost dishonest, frankly, that if we don't address those issues. And, and performance is a, is a common human issue that we have to deal with. But we have to deal with people the right way and, and with the correct set of rules. But the, there should be more, more ability to, to make, make changes there. But, um, but with the, the issue being that the reward, you're not rewarding people for basically um, being minister friendly. You actually got to reward people for being good at their jobs and particularly good at delivery. And I think being more explicit about what performance looks like would allow you to have a much clearer apolitical debate because you'd have some measures involved with it. Um, and, I, and I think just finally on the NAO, I mean, I think the, the <coughs> idea of this board is to 
surface the issue of, of capability and performance. And so one part of that could well be that the NAO reviews that the way they review other things. Um, but I think you've got to have the structure in place before we have the NAO there. NAO. Um, um, just on the other thing, you've got to watch it. You know, the Jonathan Slater sacking mm. was not a good time. Um, yep. So uh, I, I'm all for people should be assessed against their capability right the way through the organisation. But to do that, you know, yep, um, was, was not... Hand. And so there, there has to be some parameters around that. Uh, and actually, the NEO does look at the capabilities of the service. I think most, mm. lots of the reports I, I mm. had up when I was... You know, so I don't think it needs changes in its uh, uh, terms of reference or anything. Um, and we looked... You know, and I think one of the things that in, in my time we did, which is rather well, is we we looked at projects through their life. So we took the Olympics through life. We looked at um, uh, uh, the, the probate when the probation service was being privatised at that time. We took it from initial thought right the way through. And mm -hmm. so I th I think uh, I think it does it rather well actually. And I don't think it, it, it needs, uh, and we, look, we always look at the capability of the civil service in relation to that. I think, I don't know unless you felt as recipients of it that it could have done it better, but I felt it did challenge, take that quite well. Always you know, felt other appropriately uncomfortable to be uh, <laughs> <laughs> by, the, uh, by the NAO. I, think, I, mean, I, I also think there's a danger with expanding the NAO's remit too much because it, I agree. it, it, it needs to be that sort of authoritative auditing body um, uh, and I think if you take it too far into some of the political and policy debates then uh, there's a danger for the sort of the, the, na I mean, the national I mean one of the things I would love to happen from completely is I think we need a review of the audit function within the public sector because mm -hmm. yeah. we got yeah. rid of uh, the local authority yeah. audit yeah. capability and I think that means that actually that now local authorities and whether you talk about actually health service yeah. leaders whether you look at the health or whether police or whatever um, aren't as well audited. As uh, you and I have talked about this, Margaret, but I think there's a problem really stored up uh, for the future, which yeah. we're beginning to see, and um, uh, uh, with, with the end of the Audit Commission yeah. and lack of scrutiny on local government things. Amy had asked explicitly for the IFG view on ease of dismissing civil servants. Do you want to give it, or shall I, or oh, do we rely on telepathy working? You can uh, then tell me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, uh, so... Uh, Clearly, I mean, it's probably what, what Ian said, yeah, I think. Yeah. There's, 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 so there is a certain, you know, if you're a permanent secretary uh, or head of the civil service, there is a certain level of inevitable jeopardy, I suppose, about that job. You are exposed, like any chief executive, mm. to um, events, some of which you control and some of which you don't control. But it does seem that, you know, the, the you know, ministers will always um, uh, serve at the pleasure of the prime minister. There needs to be some element of fairness and procedural fairness around that for everybody in the organisation. Um, but equally, um, people who aren't performing need to be uh, managed out. I mean, one of the uh, differences, it always struck me, in the civil, between the civil service and other sectors is um, uh, the, the rounds of uh, redundancy, voluntary or compulsory, are rarer, perhaps, than in other, um, uh, other sectors. But then when they come, they come in a um, sort of explosive and yeah. um, uh, somewhat uncoordinated way so you're not having a sort of every couple of years three four five percent of the civil service is leaving because they're not suited to the jobs that they're doing so you don't have that kind of um, refreshing of the civil service and then you get a 91,000 
uh, job cuts that means the wrong people leave, they leave in the yeah, wrong areas, yeah, and it's yeah. done in an uncoordinated yeah, yeah. way that's counterproductive to effect. On which we so have an excellent piece written by Alex. <laughs> okay, um, there's some terrific questions online which I will get to. Um, let's, let's come back to the room. Here, please. Um, Susanna from Civil Service World. Um, we've spoken a lot about the statute and the political side of it. I wonder if we could reflect on the impact on the civil service were such a statute to go through. I think um, it seems to me it would need cultural change in the civil service to kind of adapt to a new framework yeah. as set up by the statute. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm reflecting on kind of conversations I've had over the years with, for example, John Manzoni would often complain civil servants are too good at managing up. They're too focused on what do the ministers say. So undoubtedly there would be situations where civil servants would feel emboldened and reassured by having a legal framework to yeah. point to, but perhaps also situations where they would find themselves uncomfortable in the new sort of landscape on this statute. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what kind of change might be needed, how hard would it be, where would it come from? Really interesting point, and you put it very well. I'd like to take a second question at the, at the same time. There's one in here, and thanks for your patience. Here in the front. It's Andrew Kakabati, Henley Business School. Uh, there were two points in the report, uh, too much chemistry and the role of the minister as chair. I did I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last bit. And the role of minister as chair. A chair yeah. of the board. Yeah. I did undertake an investigation. Um, too much chemistry. <coughs> no company, no UN agency, no charity of any size would ever come up with the term too much chemistry. Number one, the chemistry between the chair and the CEO is absolutely vital. I'll tell you companies that did try and come up with structures and not the chemistry issue, they were known as Bearings Bank, Enron, Marconi, RBS, HBOS, Carillion. When I looked at what happened here, I found that the chemistry was most interesting. The civil servants I've never seen in any country or any company such a devotion to service and government. The devotion was because of belief in representative democracy and the Secretary of State was the embodiment of representative democracy. When I looked at the other side, when I come from medicine, I, what I found was the minister's treating of civil servants was close to a battered wife syndrome. <laughs> and I found it very difficult to see any other walk of life that would put up with a situation like this. I went to New Zealand, and what did I find in New Zealand? A very transactional approach that would be, un you could not apply it here because of the complexities that we have due to size and other factors. Here, the values of the civil service, unless we're very careful, are going to be undermined. The second is then the minister as chair of the board. Yes, I hear about Michael Gove, but in the investigation I undertook, there were many ministers as chair of the board that didn't turn up, turned up late use the board as a vehicle for a political platform, not politicized, it was just their point of view. In fact, I found two ministers only out of 160 interviews that I would say were competent to be a chair of a governance board. <laughs> so my conclusion is this, if this investigation, which I find incomplete, had undertaken an analysis of the point of chemistry then all right, I could see the balance between what you discover on chemistry with structures, and we can see whether this will work or not. But leaving aside what the Prime Minister does in this government or any other government, 
When you have the minister as chair of a board, whatever you want to do won't happen. What we need is professional chairs, and the minister needs to take away from that. So two very practical points. Leave aside the big issues. We have here a set of values that at our peril we damage if we go down this particular road. And secondly, if you want to set up a structure so that any minister, prime minister can actually work it, we need to professionalize the role of the chair in order to have a professional governance which provides oversight. Thank you very much. Two very interesting questions. Jonathan. Um, well, perhaps I'll take the first one on, mm. on what legislation would mean for civil servants. And um, I mean, f first of all, I think this would be a very big change for the civil service, a big constitutional change, and I think deliberately so, because we're saying there are serious problems and serious uncertainties in the current system, and this would be you know, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to clarify them. Um, I think that if this were done properly, it would, it would have to involve a process of consultation with civil service, with parliament, with obviously with ministers. Um, uh, and I'm sure Alex wouldn't claim that the model set out here is the final version or the polished. You know, so we'd have to have a conversation uh, of, to, uh, to which civil servants would be a party, I think. Mm. Um, and I used the analogy of a contract earlier. I mean, this is, this is about the contract between a multi-party contract, if you like, between you know, civil service, ministers, parliament, the state, you know. Um, and this is, you know, under any contract, what you're trying to do is get clarity about the roles, responsibilities, uh, rights, also yeah. duties. And, um, you know, if we get it right, there will be both benefit and there will be obligation too for both sides. And what we're saying is that some of that will need to change. Um, but if, if we do get it right, then the advantage of clarity yeah. for both sides, so civil servants know where they stand, ministers know where they stand, there's a mechanism for resolving the difficult cases. I think civil servants ought yeah. to be reassured by that, but undoubtedly it would involve change, yeah. and they should be part of, of designing it. I, mean, I think you're right, it would require a level of change and cult cultural approach, frankly, put on both sides, but I think actually it is still consistent with speaking truth under power, and I think it is actually a necessary pushback on some of the the trends that have happened. So I think from a civil service point of view, I would suggest they should, you know, we should welcome, they would welcome that. And on uh, Andrew's point, uh, we've disagreed on this in the past because I sort of you know, partly agree with the analysis and certainly the point about lack of ministerial expertise. The problem is that with the departmental structure, if the, if the Secretary of State is not on the board, the bo the, frankly, the department don't pay attention to the board, which is the issue in certain departments we found. So in my, my preferred solution, um, which I accept the problem, is to try and train the Secretary of State how to be a better chairman, frankly. <laughs> Thank you for that. Let me take a couple um, online, really about ministers, this pair of questions. Um, one from Gray and P saying, the speakers here keep talking about transparency, but the last thing that ministers want, he suggests, <laughs> is transparency about their decision-making, for example, the party political dimension to resource allocation. Don't the speakers agree? Um, and another one from Amy, uh, 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 saying she agrees with Ian on the lack of system for central strategic planning, but difficult to reconcile this with ministers feeling electorally accountable for their domain only. How do yeah. we make cabinet incentivized as a team yeah, compared to individuals? Very good point. Very Thank good you. Point. Margaret? 
Uh, well, shall I do the transparency? Absolutely. Um, uh, all ministers, if you want, or both. Yes. All, all <laughs> Just go back with the point with the ministers was what, bro? The, the, the ministers was... Um, transparency. The first one was on transparency. Yeah, and the transparency second... Transparency ministers don't want it, and the second one is that ministers feel um, responsible for their patch. They oh, they don't uh, look the, across, across the board. Two voters, and so how do you get them to act as a cabinet? That They, they, they think, you know, the, that they are accountable to voters for the bit that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is in their job So, Politicians don't want it, but that we want, the whole purpose of the Institute for Government is to get more effective, more efficient um, uh, uh, government. And one of the ways in which you do that is through transparency. And I think if you can, uh, I, I do look at the local authority model. The local authority model is the advice comes from uh, uh, the bureaucracy to the politicians openly and is debated openly, and then a political decision is taken. I see absolutely no reason whatsoever why we can't mirror that in, in central government. Absolutely no reason. And, uh, uh, and what I would argue is if, if you, there's greater discourse, a greater, you have to do open justification of the position you take, you're bound to get a better end and a more sustainable argument. So I would have, uh, I, I would have advice given to ministers being um, absolutely open. Now the argument against that is advice then won't be written. It'll be you know uh, people will speak to each other and they won't write mm. things down and that's not very good. Uh, and the best is the my answer to that is the best is the enemy be good. It would be better if we took it a little bit further, and and got that open. Yeah. On ministers being siloed uh, and thinking only about their department, I think this is a real uh, completely agree with it. It's a really difficult problem, uh, and when you get some sort of you know tough tough issues mm. uh, that cross departmental boundaries, the trying to get um, uh, real um, cross, uh, mm. cross uh, uh, real thinking across the departments to work well um, is very hard. The only way in which I think you can start to change that is people follow the money. So if you could set up, but where there are oh, issues yeah. that require across departmental obesity or whatever it is you're yeah. thinking about, or actually, I mean, I think it's a failure of the health service reforms. They haven't really created those budgets between local authorities exactly. and health to, to really drive the change that we need to deal with uh, social care and, yeah. um, and, and reducing hospital care. So I, I do think the only way to, ch to do that, or the most effective and quickest way of doing it, is to force through budgets cooperation across boundaries. Yeah, if I could add, I mean, I, mm. I think naturally politicians don't, sort of see the world the way the world problems show up. They tend to be sort of policy yeah. led. I thought what Mark said well tried to do with sort of fusion structure, which is take thematics and work out how they mapped across government was the right answer, which then creates budget led. But it's very difficult to get the politics to tie up to the government. And this is the sort of constant stress. Um, my other observation about cross departmental working is that if it's at the right size with the right urgency, Actually, I'm going to take a really odd example, but the government had to resolve the situation with Chelsea, which involved DCMS leading it, FCO trying to work out what, what it meant internationally, and sanctions, and the Treasury trying to work out what it meant for public. Actually, they managed to solve, the three departments worked fantastically well with a bunch of other people, managed to solve a really tricky problem. But because it was, def it was bounded mm -hmm. and it was 
urgent and they mm. actually did a great, mm. uh, we should call it out, it was a great job. Mm. Um, but most of the problems that the government face are these mm. incredibly messy, systemic, large problems that don't fit our departmental mm. structures. And in fact, the departmental structures go in the way. So I, I think the opportunity to reshape that, but then it requires a strategic plan for government, I'm afraid, which mm. we keep going back to that mm. uh, lack of prioritisation. Yeah. Well, I was just going to reflect on a, on a, a, problem, a problem case. Um, which is, so yes, about the, the, the risk of silo thinking, but also about ministers not necessarily be interested in long-term planning. We talked about planning for pandemics and emergencies, but of course lots of government decisions are long-term decisions. Mm -hmm. If you take an example of planning for uh, airport expansion, yeah. uh, you can have all the planning uh, in the world uh, and a decision taken under one prime minister and another prime minister comes along who doesn't like that decision and what do you do um, when you have a, a long-term plan, which is highly political, is obviously about the allocation of resource, um, and a, a, a government or prime minister comes in who disagrees with the decision that's been taken. So I don't have the answer to that. And it, maybe there isn't an answer. Um, other, other that, you know, you can have a plan and you can have uh, um, you know, all, all the structures you want, but in the end, decisions of that kind are going to be heavily political and politicians you know, may want to change them. So I think all you can do is build in the structures to make sure that the best possible decisions are taken, but in the end they are going to be political decisions. Mm. And, uh, Alex, yeah. I'm trying to think of, um, this is a bit unfair, a meeting in which you haven't made the point of how difficult it is for government to deal with these is issues that cross departments. Yes, com com completely. I mean, on that, just on, on the sort of... Mm. Uh, uh, on the sort of political decisions uh, changing things, the... You know, one of the benefits I would say of a model something like this is it's, 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 it's completely right that ministers uh, take those decisions and are held accountable to Parliament. But it's also really important, uh, and this speaks a little bit to transparency, that, that it's clear on what basis, on yeah. whose advice, mm -hmm. yeah. how that's worked. So if the, you know, if, if the sort of bureaucratic state is saying this isn't a very good idea for value for money or other... Um, reasons, then I think there's a there's there's a role for ministerial directions. There's a role for just a sort of more open discussion about uh, about the basis on which decisions have been made. Mm. On the coordination cross cross government, I think Ian mentioned the quad and the coalition period. Um, really notable, and this was where, if you like, I, uh, to my mind, the sort of uh, political necessity and the administration combined oh, is that there was a there was a program for government that was agreed mm. rapidly at the start of the government. It's sort of in strategic plan, if you like. How strategic some of it was, you can debate. But but there was a um, uh, there was both a political and an administrative necessity to agree that plan. Um, uh, it was very hard then for the government to deviate from it, which caused its own problems. Mm. But ministers all knew what they were signed up for. Mm. The administration knew that that was uh, the purpose to support. Budgets could be allocated accordingly. Um, some of those more kind of wicked cross-departmental problems um, uh, were, were, you know, were started to, uh, to be tackled. On uh, Andrew's point there about sort of chair of the board, we, we really went back and forth uh, internally on whether the prime minister or another minister or a non-executive or the head of the civil service or somebody else should chair this board. I don't think there is a right answer to it, but I don't think you can divorce the political ministerial authority from the administrative yeah. authority in any structure like this. Ron, I just okay. have to come yeah, back on. on the political... 
I think we've got to be very careful about this. You know, politi politicians aren't hopeless at running, running departments. We've got to decide what sort of politicians we want. And, I, and, and one, of, one of my questions today is people are coming into politics more and more simply to be ministers, simply to, to, to do that deeper. And the sort of idea of representing your community or coming in with values, that's sort of going by the board. Uh, so I think, you know, just saying you haven't got... You haven't got a particular set of skills. You can be trained to them. Uh, you learn on the job, if I'm honest, mm -hmm. quite a lot as well. And some are better than others. But I, I, I'm a bit worried about this. Oh, all this political cast, they're bleeding useless lot because they've never run anything. Is that the sort of politician you want? Really, really good point. Thank you. I'm going to come to questions in the room uh, now while, while Ian simmers on that one. Um, <laughs> one there, please. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, Nick Herbert, I, I chaired the Commission for Smart Government, which reported last year and which uh, Ian and Margaret were part of. And uh, that was coming up with uh, policy ideas in the same space as the discussion here, but also had a broader purpose, uh, which was to try and uh, create uh, support for the idea uh, that this all matters. And that's just what I wanted to try and, if I may, just, just take us back to. Because I, I thought Lord Sainsbury's introduction was an incredibly sort of powerful, sweeping declaration as to why this all matters, you know, why it should be uh, important. Uh, but very quickly, our conversation inevitably gets down into the weeds, into the wiring. Uh, because we all in this room and watching are the anoraks who think that these issues are interesting and are important. My concern is that most of uh, Margaret and my and, and, and David's political colleagues don't. Uh, and uh, even political leaders don't. They don't see that this matters. They don't really want to talk about this. Uh, and uh, they're interested in politics and some of them are interested in policy, not as many as you'd think, uh, but, but, but they're not interested in, in, in this subject. And I think the prior challenge for us, um, as Jonathan said, uh, when he referred to the, the need for political will, as Ian said when he talked about the meta problem, or as Anthony Selden said when he talked about the need for leadership, is how we are going to create the movement that is going to persuade future political leaders uh, of, the, of the importance of driving this agenda. Uh, and I think it should be possible because it's all about delivery and therefore political success. And because it, it seems obvious that some of the, the very big challenges now that have been created by Brexit and by COVID require uh, some major changes that, that, that need to be implemented successfully. So we ought to be able to persuade future leaders that this all matters. But I think if we were being self-critical, I think we might agree that we haven't been able to persuade them so far. And I think that's the real challenge for us now. And I think these are all really interesting questions, and I don't mean to be dismiss them or, or, or to, to sound patronizing. I have a horrible feeling I, I might be. But it's just that I worry that we could be sitting here in another 10 years' time, still ourselves talking about these issues and some of the incremental in changes that could be made without having really persuaded the political leadership, both well, major political parties uh, in this country, that these really are issues that need to be grappled with. Thank you very much.
beautifully and powerfully. Can I, uh, Penny, you just uh, leave uh, the microphone there. What would be your best example, if you like, or, or pitch to an incoming prime minister for why this matters? Uh, well, I think I had a go just by saying that I would try and link it to delivery, to yeah. say that you know what yeah. will matter to your political success yeah. is not just that yeah. you are able to make a, a series of compelling mm. announcements or um, uh, appointments, but mm. that actually in a relatively short period of time you're able to show that um, things will change. And I think just an appeal to the long term mm. is dangerous because, because political leaders might find that uh, more of a challenge. Uh, yes. I think, I think there has to also be an appeal to the short term. Yeah. Thank, uh, you, thank, thank you for that. And I, I will come to... Another, let me just take that question on its own, though, because it is so important, and thank you for putting it. Ian? Yeah, look, Nick, I mean, as we know, that I, as I found that the single most important question of you know, why doesn't the political will engage on, on this, given that, theoretically, we're all here to deliver government. I think it's uh, David Sainsbury's sort of fear is that we'll be talking about this again in another 10 years is, is absolutely the existential question. David is nodding. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, my, my sense is that one of the things that we have to do is, to, and I think your word is right, is creating a movement of we have to go out and sell it. And I think the responsibility for the IFG and for us interested in these things is positively to engage while recognising that it's not the natural interest topic for, for a lot of people. Mm. But to your point, you've got to sell it to a political audience. And so what's in it for them is the key question. And it's making them more effective and more likely to be re-elected is essentially the pitch. And I think we've got to demonstrate mm. that. And I think we, to do that, we've got to have some models that say, if you do this, it's better for you. And to my mind, you know, the, the, there are lots of ways you can, particularly with the current set of challenges, say to people, look, it's really important that what is seen to deliver is more important than the top-line announcements. And, and I think that we're in that phase of delivery on it's mm. uh, very, very acute at the moment. Mm. Mark, Jonathan. Um, yeah. I, mean, I was going to go to Jonathan next. Oh, well, really little to add. I mean, I completely agree with the analysis of the problem and, I, and, and with the difficulty yeah. of achieving it. But yes, I agree. This is ultimately about the effectiveness of government. And one must assume that most ministers care about that. Mm. And it's just persuading them of that of that link, and this yeah. is therefore worth investing in. Mm. And, and of, I agree, it's and not and just and about And of the, the problems that this problem has, has, has caused. Yeah. In the um, yeah. Margaret. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, when did Tony Blair say he had the daggers in his back? I think it was about six years in, wasn't it? Seven years in, eight years in. It was only then that he sort of realised that uh, uh, he hadn't put enough attention to actually the machine and its, its capability to deliver. Um, and to throw daggers. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, I, this is, it's impossible. I don't know how you get people to worry about it. I will say this, I, I have had, I've had a lot to do the social service, obviously as a minister, and then I had the ten, five years as uh, PAC chair. Since 2015, mm. I haven't had a lot to do with the civil right. service for, um, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. But recently, ministers have sort of asked me in to talk about the Economic Crime Act. And what has hit me when I've gone in now mm is how hollowed out the capability is. So in a way, this sort of up and down of recruiting mm. and, and playing around, it, it has left us, and I hope I'm not offending anybody, but with a lot of young people, you've lost a lot of the middle tier experience mm. that has gone in. This is, purely, this is purely impressionistic. Yeah. You know, I haven't been in that enough. So in a way, there is an opportunity, perhaps with a new prime minister and perhaps with a change of government, to say that, 
actually, it is so now, um, uh, uh, you know, denuded that if mm. you, you could, if you're going to deliver anything mm. that you care about, this is an opportunity to start building mm -hmm. a capability mm. that delivers. So um, that may be a wrong assessment, but that's literally, I've dealt with about three or four departments in the last few months, and that's what I've come away feeling. Mm. Thanks very much come back. Yeah. So I think that may be true. I don't want to widen this unduly, but to some of the other sort of constitutional governance issues around the country that IFG and others have been looking at, like ministerial standards and so on, which are not going to happen under this government, but where there are definitely systemic problems, um, and where you know, I hope and others hope that you know, whether under a new prime minister or a new government, there will be a moment mm. when these things are, th are thought to be mm. sufficiently important. Um, and I'm, I've been at the civil service now a couple of years, but you know, my impression is that morale is not great. I recognise some of the problems you describe. Um, and there is, a, there is a bit of a running battle. I'm, not, I'm sure it doesn't apply in all parts of the civil service all the time. But the narrative is pretty negative. And you sort of reach the point, you can't go on like that. And so you, I would hope, maybe it's optimistic, but one hopes that there will come a moment mm. where a government does actually recognise this matters, and it has to recognise mm. that it matters to it and its ability to govern mm. effectively. Yeah. And, and that would be the moment for implementing some of these otherwise slightly kind of um, unglamorous yeah. reforms, but Alex, because, because they matter. Alex, would you like to come bring your answer to this uh, <laughs> question into your final summit, sure. summing up remarks? I want to take two more online, which take us in a slightly different direction. Um, one from Christopher Hood. Um, I think he's done a lot of work on the Treasury, saying, Howard civil servants working for devolved governments and the administrative operation of those governments fit into a revamped statutory yeah. framework. Um, and then he says, a little bit later on in our discussion, I still don't know what country we're talking about here. <laughs> what about civil servants working for governments in Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland civil services mm. had to do without a functioning government for long periods um, for the reasons we all know. So there's that one. And then... Um, or two, um, and then one from Phil Golding, who is Chief Executive of the Law Commission, saying, we've been talking about central government, but David Sainsbury uh, referred to arm's length bodies, where often independence is enshrined, there's expertise, uh, maybe more evident, and scale is more manageable. Is there an argument for more devolution from Whitehall to these expert bodies, the Law Commission, obviously being one. one. <laughs> um, on which full disclosure, I, I'm a non-executive. Oh. Um, who would um, like to, this, this takes us out of Westminster, both those, mm. those questions, the, de, the devolved and the arm's length bodies. Who would like to start? I'll go on ALBs, because I wouldn't want to. Yes. Go on, on nations, I think, is a, yeah, I think yeah. the generic principle, I'm sure, applies. That how you do it in yeah. different places, yeah. I'm sure, is difficult. With arm's length bodies, I mean, I think my, my sort of concern would be that the same logic ought to apply in the sense there should there should be a clear role for the specialists in those, you know, and, and, the, and the civil servants effectively who are up in those bodies. Where I think it works well is there's a clear remit for the ALB that is doing something specific. I have to say my experience of seeing the whole variety of ALBs in, in my time and talking to the non-execs in the ALBs is that um, there are some sort of very unstructured, uh, unclear ALBs which were essentially kicked out of departments to try and deal with a problem that was perceived at the time. And there are quite a few agencies that should never have been separated out. They should have always been in, involved. So I think the answer is if you've got an ALB with a really clear remit uh, and is cl clearly set up, 
it should be able to function on its own and it should have a version of this type of statute applied to it, I think exactly logically. The problem I see is where you have the problem of accountability, where it's not clear it's the department, it's the ALB, it's, and there are a few, a lot of muddled um, places out there which I think make this very, very difficult. So the... And what, the, what about the independents? Um, well, which matters to a lot of them, were there? Yeah, museums, no, absolutely. Look, I mean, I, broadcasting arms. I was going to say, I speak as someone who's got a statutory duty to look after Channel 4, and that might often mean that, you know, that, that's not necessarily what some parts of government w w want me to do, but I've got a statutory responsibility which makes it pretty clear. Um, that, that is incredibly helpful. So, to, to your point mm. earlier, Jonathan, you know, having, having a statutory base, I think, does make a difference. My, my concern is just that I think a lot of the LBs are not necessarily the product of great strategic thinking. I think they are immediate solutions to problems that maybe are a bit archaeological now and they've gone away. So I think as part of your general thinking about the civil service, I would step right back and say which parts of these should be where. Some of the LBs are terrific, some I'm, not, I'm less convinced by. So in answer to, to Phil Gollow's question, should there be more of this to answer some of these problems? You're saying, well, look, watch out, it's got to be for a reason. Very careful about creating more LBs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go into the, the devolved notions. I don't know enough about it, but this, uh, somebody said it earlier. There's nothing wrong with a very strong centre and, and, and a lot of uh, decentralisation, yeah. and that's a good model. But to get it right, you have to put both... You've got to get your regulation and your enforcement and your accountability right. Accountability. Uh, uh, so um, whether it's ALBs... Whatever it is, at the moment, we've allowed them to be politicised, something we said at the beginning, which uh, is unhealthy. And then I worry about things like actually the academy school trusts, where the accountability and the regulation is so weak that there's a lot of stuff going on there, which probably, you know, of, of uh, contracts being given, what's, it, what's the term? Contracts being given to people with an interest in, in, in the particular, and things like that. Stuff like that going on, which just shouldn't be. So let's have smaller is better with a strong centre, but then you've got to get regulation, uh, 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 enforcement and accountability much, much tougher. And we never... Sorry, another thing, Bronwyn, on mm. that. No, no, we no. never invest on that enough. If you look across the whole thing, it's again, it's an area where we fail to invest. So you pass these ruddy laws, you then try and get them in practice, in, mm. enacted, and nobody has ever invested enough in that sort of yeah. enforcement accountability structure. And particularly on the devolved. Yes, so happy to say that. And I, I, I don't know if you want to do the sort of uh, uh, wrapping up moment as well, but... Um, uh, on ALBs, just to agree with Ian and Margaret said that, I think it's as or even more important that you have a clear uh, model of, um, of, of accountability. I think there is a question about the sort of regulatory state and how it is uh, overseen and, and held to account. On the DAs, I, I felt a twinge of guilt because I was going to mention them in my um, uh, presentation <laughs> and then didn't, thought I'd just keep it to, to UK. But it, it's, it, it is very complicated because of the incremental way that the UK civil service has... Um, has, has built up. I think there is a way that you would need to work in the leaders of the Scotland and Wales civil service in particular if you're going to maintain a single uh, a GB civil service. Northern Ireland is a different case. Um, broadly, the model that we're talking about here is having a, uh, an opportunity both at um, ministerial level in, the, uh, in Scotland and Wales and 
civil service level to feed into this board and oversight structure and then to have accountabilities to the parliaments in Scotland and Wales in a similar way to the UK parliament. But it's complicated and it's messy, but that's because it's complicated and and messy. On the broader points, and I won't say uh, very much uh, more, but I was to uh, Nick Lord Herbert's uh, fantastic uh, contribution there. Thank you. I, uh, you know, obviously agree. I'm not a politician, so don't necessarily know the political answer. But if the last few years has, uh, you know, created a moment where the political system, the political class, realizes that, um, uh, you know, sustained focus on actually making changes happen in the real world to real people is a good thing. You know, the the big moments of political, of profa- the big profound political moments, whether it's Brexit or um, uh, anything else, you know, obviously fundamentally important, but then there needs to be follow-up and needs to be um, uh, a focus on, on change. What I hope we've done here, right, wrong, bits of it, you know, more or less uh, uh, suitable, is uh, uh, create a, you know, a model, create something to have a discussion around and to put out there and to have a debate over what's right and what's wrong. And I think, um, okay, it's a bit of a technocrat's answer, but having a, you know, having a model to discuss and, and, and do some of these things is part of the discussion. So it's not just a kind of uh, All right, it's beginning to sound like you're summing up, negative. which it isn't yet. Sorry, I thought I was... Because I we're going to take two more questions in the, in the, in, in the room, one, one online as well, and get the panel's last thoughts on that. There are two here on the aisle. Um, Jess Bowie, Civil Service World. I'm old enough to remember when John Manzoni became C- Chief Executive of the Civil Service, and, you know, he came in with all this fighting talk about how the Francis Maud era, that was the first era of reform, but the second era of reform was that the civil service was going to seize its own destiny, whatever the damn politicians thought, <laughs> his words. Um, and, you know, his, his whole thing was about delivery, improving capability, all the things we've been talking about, um, reducing churn, creating career paths. And obviously a lot of progress has been made on the functional agenda, but... For all that fighting talk back then about civil servants, you know, seizing their own destiny, if it had actually come to pass, would we be having this discussion now? What, what do you all think? Um, what's happened to that agenda? Did it die in the water? Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Well. John Manzoni would be disconcerted to think you had to be that old to remember <laughs> coming again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that long. And, uh, and also in front of you, there was a question. And thank you for your patience. Hi, uh, I'm Ben Ong. I um, work for Sage Group, formerly of the Cabinet Office. Um, similarly, actually, my experience of driving any kind of change in, in government requires continuity, largely of ministerial support, and I, yeah. I, I benefited from, from John and, and Francis Maud, actually, and, and Oliver Letwin a great deal. And also the fact that ministers don't need to be, and to the earlier points, ministers don't need to be interested in something to know it's important. Mm. And I think we sometimes, as civil servants, get a bit preoccupied with making them interested rather than making the importance argument. And, and one, one observation I would make, you know, it's four years since I've left government, is that in the private sector and in a large uh, PLC, is the, the sort of seriousness and sophistication of risk management mm which sounds a kind of bureaucratic practice, pra- practice but just, just the way that we think about risk and opportunity outside government. And I, I don't recall ever seeing uh, anything similar in government. And in, on reflection, many of the issues I, I think suffer trying to make changes 
and have seen su subsequently were wildly different risk appetites between departments, yeah. uh, permanent secretaries, ministers, on a fundamentally the same cross-government issues. Mm -hmm. And I think until, and maybe a board would be a good way of surfacing those, those different risk appetites and actually trying to draw some kind of consensus or at least a decision about what the right um, uh, path forward should be. And just to, just to finish on that, I would say that, um, you know, the, the risks and strategic risks offer continuity because actually they don't change a great deal and I do wonder whether or not bringing some of these big risks whether they're resilience or capability out would actually survive maybe the, the churning ministers and the churning governments so okay really interesting point and I'm going to add to that there's just a, a final one from online Stuart Turner uh, relevantly to these two saying do you think awareness and desire for making many of these changes are already there in government and the civil service if so why can't they make these improvements themselves. Mm. So let's use these to prompt um, people's uh, last thoughts. Jonathan, may I, may I start with you? Well, I think um, if John Manzoni really did quite say that, <laughs> then he, was, he got it wrong, didn't he? Because I think what we're really saying is that you will not make any change of this sort without buy-in from politicians. Mm. Um, and that's the conundrum we're wrestling with, really, is how you get the right balance and how you get buy-in. Um, and I mean, he, he may have been joking, and I, you know, I knew John well enough to know that, you know, that, that might have been his pitch. Uh, and he, of course, he did help lead changes, particularly on the functional agenda. But in the end, it, the civil service can't take control of its own destiny um, without um, political support. Plainly, we can't legislate without parliament. Um, so um, using that as the kind of test uh, example um, that was trying to go too far, and what we're trying, what we're now wrestling with, I think, is the, the reality that in order to do any of this, we will need, um, of course, we will need buy-in from the civil service itself, but we will also need political support and ultimately from Parliament, and that's uh, and that's the complexity of what we're trying to do. Great. Thank you. Yep. Are we wrap, doing wrap-up? We, we are, yep. wrap-up, okay, but, 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 but beginning, beginning with the response yeah, to re these re questions. Responding yeah. to those um, two or three, I mean, I, I, I actually think John and the functional agenda is, is a long-term mission. I think it has made progress. It's light years on from where I saw it from DWP mm -hmm. stages and then I worked with John at the Cabinet Office, and I think it is a multi-year direction of travel. So, you know, the fact we've had some wins like the legal function and I think much greater clarity around things like HR than we've had before. Uh, it's, it's a sort of net, slightly never-ending journey, but I think it is still going. And, and um, I, I do think, to the sort of related point, I think quite a lot more of the politicians just sound a bit more glass half full, to your point, do understand the importance. I think the importance interest point is a really good point to make, mm -hmm. which is, okay, I know that's important, I'm not terribly interested, but please will you do it, is, was great. And I think getting enough people into that body of commitment. We don't have to be standard bearers for it, but they have to be supporters, because I know it's important, is there. And I think to your final point about risk, um, I have to say, I did spend quite a lot of time in Cabinet Office Audit Committee looking at risk maps endlessly, and that was not a, not a particularly pleasant experience. Um, <laughs> but, and, and some of them were so infeasibly large, like when the pension deficit between two meetings went up by 40 billion on the civil service pension, everyone thought that was quite fine. And I was sitting there with my sort of red alert signs going off. So I think a real re risk register, which then implies you've got a strategy, because you can't really have a risk register unless you've got a strategy, 
so I keep getting back to this, a joined up bit of thinking for the government, particularly on the longer term issues, which might be harder, but they are long term and it's the duty of the government of the day to think about them with a good risk management framework so it is exactly what should be happening. And I think the thing for me is I saw some of that at departmental level, which actually worked quite well. I didn't see it at the government level, and unless it was Jeremy keeping it in his head the whole time, which is probably the way it worked. But, but that ability to do that in a systemic way with a real structure to deliver it, I think really is what we have to try and persuade the, the politicians to buy into. The, the politicians. Um, I think that uh, your thought that it, we've got to tell them it's important if it's not interesting is really important. And I think if we can take some, that away yeah, today, right. I think that was a really, uh, 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 an insight on which we can then try and build a sort of strategy of trying to uh, encourage change. Uh, I was thinking we talked about risk appetite. If I were a civil servant today, um, I'd be <laughs> just hope the, uh, the risk is are you going to still be there tomorrow? You know, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> survival is the risk. Um, but maybe that's me being a bit. And uh, I, I, I just want to get back. I worked, it's probably changed massively, but I did work because Tony Blair changed us every year. So I probably worked in, I've got, I don't know, five, six different departments. And there were really cultural differences between those departments on those who were totally... It's a different thing about having a risk strategy, mm. but risk-averse yeah. culture. And there was a very, very risk-averse culture among too many people. It drove me bonkers quite often, people, uh, with whom I worked, who really, just as long as they managed to get a bit of paper off their desk or onto somebody else's desk, it didn't really matter whether it led to any progress. So I think there is something culturally among those who work in the civil service, I can't imagine it's changed that much as to whether on their attitude to, uh, uh, to risk. And maybe- well, That's not just risk, Mar Margaret, that's whether it feels real to them. Whether you say mm -hmm. it doesn't, it somehow doesn't matter. It doesn't I, seem I just to felt matter that, at that what moment. What I felt, uh, I won't name the departments, but what I just felt was if, if we had a difficult decision to take or a difficult a problem we were confronting, their answer was simply to put it off for another day, to actually get the mm. bit of paper, you know, or push the bit of paper that they were asking to, to, to deal with onto somebody else. Now that's slightly, so if we created a risk management culture yeah. within uh, the, the way that civil services operate, that might bring it out. Yeah. So it wasn't just that they were frightened, they just literally, you know, the way in which they managed their careers Mm. Was by not by not taking not getting engaged in anything that might have put their head above a little bit above the parapet. Mm. I, um, yes. Thanks, Robin. And um, yeah, just on Margaret's point, there, I, th I think there's an instinct towards process, is that which is sometimes absolutely yeah. the right thing and yeah. necessary. Yeah. Sometimes it's the wrong thing. Yeah. So how do you test which mode you you, you yeah. need to be in? On on those quick points, I mean. Uh, John Manzoni uh, played a fantastic role, partly because he uh, could say things like that and uh, <laughs> had that little bit of uh, uh, distance and, and, and different perspective. Um, I think I agree with everything Ian said on the functional um, agenda. I think there is both on the functions and uh, whether you call them public service agreements or outcome delivery plans or uh, you know the kind of the way that government. Uh, sets out its objectives and then holds departments to account for delivering them. I think we're at a moment of jeopardy on that at the moment. So I think one of the things that we and people in this room mm. uh, should be doing is not getting too focused on process, but saying there are kind of you know important mechanistic ways that 
that um, uh, the government should work. On Ben's point on uh, importance and um, uh, interest, completely agree with that. I think there's something, and it goes to what I was saying in my um, uh, jumping too early on the uh, wrapping up, but the sort of something about the seriousness of government. It's a, it, it, it doesn't have to be heavy, but it does need to be sort of serious because there are important issues and, uh, and, and, and trading off, which comes back to what I was, uh, what I was saying, which is hopefully having a model um, uh, uh, that, uh, that allows us to get into some of these um, discussions is a useful thing. And as I said at the end of my presentation, we want to take that forward with Parliament. We want to take it forward with people who are interested in what um, the a sort of statute or a version of it might particularly look like, and we want to um, look more at the standards um, and the functional standards that come from uh, from the cabinet office and the and, and the treasury uh, uh, that speak to the running of the civil service and the effectiveness of the running of the civil service. So that's a sort of forward forward pointing uh, yeah. future work. Well, thank you for taking us to that point. Thank you all for your questions. I'm sorry for the ones I couldn't quite get in. Ben Yong of Durham University it was a great question. It doesn't quite fit in this session, but speaks to a very interesting course you're doing. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you all. Um, thank you for uh, engaging with us. Um, particularly thank you uh, those online who are joining um, and those from the civil service who've, who've uh, contributed your thoughts about how we can take this forward. And uh, as I said at the beginning, and as David uh, said very eloquently, this is something that we don't intend to go away. And so it is, it's here in printed form and will be um, you know, a constant theme of our work. Thank you very much. We're going to wrap up this one. And then there is uh, policy making and all the joys of that um, this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. you join me in thanking the panel. Um,